0: Welcome to episode one hundred and one of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the
1: mature mind. I'm your co-host Russ, and I'm your co-host Mike. Episode one hundred one is a uh, what do you call that when when you can read the same thing backwards as forwards? What is that called? A palindrome. That's what palindrome. I'm trying to think of. Okay, right. Things are coming really slow this week. It's a number palindrome. So hmm. one hundred one. How about that? On our way to. The next 100 episodes, I'm really ready to reach 1,000, though.
0: Yeah, add another zero on there. Anyway, last week we had some good feedback from Fabio Brun and uh, John DeVersa, oh, cool. our two trumpet yeah. players. Yeah, uh, it was nice of uh, it there.
1: Yeah, and Fabio Brun's uh, fans, too, like wrote to us, too, which is very nice. So yeah. thank you to all of them.
0: That's really good. I don't think we have any... Uh, deaths this week in classical or jazz that i heard of
1: there have been a lot of deaths uh, interestingly in in like popular music or things like that lately but classical and jazz not so nothing nothing so far yeah. so it looks like it's going to be a good year for classical and jazz and it actually is starting out really well for us too we've got some good recordings yeah. to listen to and talk about in tonight too and even next week so looking yeah. forward to all of this a lot of new releases
0: coming out this
1: first week of february
0: and, of course, we celebrated our 100th episode last week, and next week's going to be our two-year anniversary.
1: All right, so we got another feast coming up. We actually yeah. went out for a nice Italian feast last night. That was really yeah, delicious. Yeah. Thanks to uh, everybody at Casareccio and to Fabrizio, the, our chef, yeah. for giving us some good food and treating us well. That was a good night. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so tonight we've got, uh, well, a lot of guitar and a lot of organ going on in the music And we've got some adventurous stuff. If you haven't listened to it already, you can check that out. A little bit. A little bit edgy. Mm. And before we get into that, Mm. if you're a new listener, I want to remind you that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform, You can also follow us there, get the podcast and the music in the same place. Just look us up, adult music podcast. And also, if you can't see the full description or the links are not active wherever you listen to us, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, Podbean. That's podbea Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend too. Word of mouth gets us new listeners. Uh, If you've got friends who are interested in classical and jazz music, and they might want to hear what we have to say or check out some of these recordings, uh, we'd appreciate that. And if you give us a ranking or a review, just take a couple minutes. That helps us get listed in the recommendations on the podcast apps and so forth. And that helps us grow our audience too. So we'd appreciate that. Also, please do. Come follow us on our Facebook page. Uh, We're getting a following of artists over there and uh, a few more listeners joined up in the past week. But you can get extra info and you can interact with the artists uh, that we uh, talk with during the week as well. A whole bunch of new jazz stuff up there this week. Uh, You know, some of that stuff we may not get to on the podcast depending on how things go. But if you're looking for something Mm -hmm. to listen to every day during the week, you can find a few uh, recommendations in there almost every day. And you can leave a message or comment there as well on Facebook. Or if you want to get in touch directly, you can uh, shoot us an email. We'd be happy to hear from you and be sure to reply. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we're also trying to expand audiences with other podcasts, like-minded listener sharing. We've got a few recommendations here. Something came from Baltimore, from Tom Galker. He does interviews with jazz, blues, and R&B famous artists and celebrities. And it's not really about Baltimore. <laughs> That's just where he's based. Mm-hmm. He's always got some interesting interviews going on. Also, famous interviews in Neon Jazz. That's from Joe DiMino. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. And Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Abra look at several versions of the same jazz standard each work, and they play snippets from each version. They discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So if you're into jazz music and want to get some uh, standard perspectives there, that would be an interesting one. Anyway, you'll find links for all of those podcasts at the end of our description. And if you hang on to the end of the episode, we'll have little promos from each one you can listen to and then
1: uh, check them out during the week as well. Yeah, I wonder if people actually do listen to, to to the entire episode all the way to the end. I don't know. Well, oh, of someone does. Yeah, make some of my best comments. Then you got to kind of keep uh, <laughs> you keep stay going on to the people, end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You got to stay on to the end. That's when that's when the gold comes out. Yeah. Anyway. I, I suppose we should just kind of get right into this week. There's no news to talk about, you know. Hmm. It's been pretty. There's just only good music. There's not much news, and we we had a good time this week, and we're enjoying our um, second anniversary milestone. It's kind of a big festive time for us. Yeah. And, um,
0: and January was our best month of downloads ever. So things are yeah. looking up.
1: And February isn't starting not, well. Not off to a big start, start but we'll change that hopefully. <laughs> yeah. How does, how does that happen? I don't understand. Anyway, get your friends to listen because yeah. this is a really great podcast. All right, let's get into the classical music right away. I have something uh, that uh, none of us have ever heard before, or unless you're really more hardcore than I am. Then <laughs> we have a Baroque mass, actually, and some Baroque yeah. religious music by the Czech composer. Czech composer, you got that? Frantisek Ignatz, Antonín Tumá. And uh, I had never heard of him. Uh, this was uh, the, a, a discovery. He's he's a Czech composer. Now he lived from 1704 to 1774. Now you would call him, I guess, Bohemian. I think I didn't really look at an old map, but you know, of course, the Czech Republic didn't exist then, nor did Czechoslovakia. But I think this would have been he would have been part of the whole Habsburg Empire. So hmm. there are a lot of composers from this Eastern European region from the. Um, the Baroque and classical eras like Mozart's time, and they're all really good. We need to just dis- rediscover all of them. There's so much good music out there. Anyway, this album is um, performances of his um, Deum which is a sort of religious prayer, uh, C- Christian prayer. Then we have an instrumental Symphonia X C C XC, C major. And then his, uh, the main work, I guess, would be the Misa Veni Pater Poporum, which is a full mass. This is performed by the Czech Ensemble Baroque Orchestra and Choir, Teresa Valkova is the choir master, and Roman Válek is the conductor. And this is on the Superphone label, and they are based in the Czech Republic. And they release mostly Czech uh, music, or music performed by Czech ensembles. Mm. And um, I highly recommend uh, their recordings of the Pavel Haas Quartet. They've all been pretty fantastic recordings, but this is something new. Anyway, if you're like me and you're, you still buy CDs, I, mean, I think I'm a relic of the past, according to a lot of young people <laughs> anyway, but I don't know. I think, um, I still enjoy the CD putting in the, in the player, you know, the whole ritual of sitting down and just waiting for that sound to come on. And I kind of enjoy it more than like, say, vinyl, because in vinyl, you get all the crackle. So you kind of know the music's coming on, but in CD, yeah. it just sort of happens like that. You know, I just love that. I just bursts on. Anyway, if you buy the CD, the texts, for the two choral works aren't in the CD booklet, which I find <laughs> very disappointing, but you can find them online. So I guess um, the CD owner and the uh, streamer, like the MP3 streamer or whatever, have equal access to the um, mm. the words, which is good. But I feel like if you buy the CD, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they should put you deserve a little extra. There. Come on. Yeah. It costs more than the uh, MP3 anyway, if you buy the MP3. And most people are going to stream it anyway. Anyway, so if you want that, if you're listening to this um, via streaming, you want to follow along you know, or sing along to the words, you can find them at www.superphone.com catalog with a U-E at the end slash libretto and you'll find it there. Hmm. Okay, you might even want to have a look at Superphone's other music offerings while you're visiting their site. By the way, if you get the CD, the CD booklet has a QR code to get you there more quickly. Oh, that's cool. Okay, I don't have a smartphone, so I can't do that either. You are a relic. I have an old iPod. Yeah, well, everything's moving really fast, and I don't like where it's (laughs) going. That's the problem with me. But anyway, I do have a, I have an old iPod Touch, and I do have a um, an app that'll allow me to scan these um, QR codes, but. This drives me crazy. I just want the world to stop for a while so I can relax. <laughs> anyway, but not the music, just uh, the technology, because it's getting a, it's annoying. Let me just say it that way. It's annoying, and people are tracking me. <laughs> anyway, that's my feeling on the matter. If people actually do kind of like follow me and like where I search, I think ninety percent, or maybe even up to ninety-five percent, of my uh, thoughts and searches are about music. So I think that'll bore a lot of people very quickly. <laughs> anyway. Tuma, let's talk about this uh, composer, František Ignác Antonín Tuma. He was Czech, and he spent most of his life in Vienna, as um, a lot of musicians did at the time. He's a Baroque composer, but he's late enough in the Baroque era for elements of the galant style, hmm. which we've talked about in past episodes. Like we heard, um, you know, some Italian composers who were composed in that style, like Galuppi, and uh, it's kind of all surface. It's it's sort of decorative music. It doesn't really yeah. have any. Emotional stuff to it, but so it so it has a lot of really kind of flashy sort of scales and things like that, and even classicism from uh, Haydn and Mozart to be brought in to this um, Baroque style. And uh, this album is really all upbeat. All of the works are festive, and yeah. they really have, were written for special occasions too. So this is kind of an uplifting Baroque album. Whenever people come up to me and they ask me, you know, I, I like classical music. Where should I start? Because it's really a massive. Thing And if I ask them what they like, like if they like Chopin or like Mozart, then I can, then it's easy. But if they still, I just don't know. I send them to the Baroque because it's just cheerful yeah. music generally, unless it's like vocal music, then then it, they're trying to plumb emotions. But uh, this album is like that. It's very um, upbeat and um, immediately enjoyable. Tracks one through six on this album are the uh, Te Deum written in 1745. It's the latest work on this album and is written while Tuma was kapellmeister of the newly set up ensemble of Empress Dowager Elizabeth Christine the widow of Charles VI Hmm. it was an outside commission though it was written for the Stift Wilhering a Cistercian monastery in Upper Austria their archive contains the one and only known copy of the piece and someone found it how great is that the Stift Wilhering yeah, you know, We're li- really lucky to have this, really. You know, one, you, you yeah. know, forget about the recording, just to even have the piece. The Wilhering possessed an immense music archive boasting highly valuable items built up between 1734 and 1750 by its music-loving abbot, Johann Baptist Hinterherzel, who would have been a great co-host for the adult music podcast were he alive today. <laughs> I'd really like to hear his opinions on some of the music that we listen to, at least from that era. I'm sure he'd love it all. This, um, so we have six tracks and we start with the Te Deum. This is really just one long prayer and it's just separated into six tracks here. This starts with these, uh, booming old style timpani hits, which outline the rhythm of the vocal line. It's a lovely movement. Mm. I shouldn't really call it a movement the entire well, although he does kind of separate this into six different sections. Um, with chordal harmonies in the vocals separated by short melismatic sections sung by soprano Romana Kruzikova and alto Monica Yagarova, and tenor Jakub Kubin. The recording favors the high end and can really take your head off if it's played too loud. It's a quiet recording, though, with sound levels kept low, except for those high ends. When you turn mm. it up, you're really vulnerable to that um, you know, high-frequency uh, knife coming at your yeah. head from the tweeters in your speakers. Uh, the recording is fairly dry. Now, this is something... This is part of the Superphone Records aesthetic, I think. All of their recordings are dry. They just don't like that gloss of the room resonance. Uh, they, they mm. favor the sound. It's not a bad thing if you like detail. I think it just, it's just not a sumptuous sound, but it's their sound. They, they, they all sound like this. All the Pavel Haas quartet albums sound like this. I don't really have a problem with those because I like the performances a lot, but I generally like a glossier sound. Mm. Okay. So just, you've been warned if you don't like, uh, more matte finishes on your sounds, you, you might want to. Although this is the only chance you're ever going to get to hear this work, really. So you're going to have to go here. Anyway, we go on to the second track, Te Gloriosus, Continuing the Prayer. Uh, features two solo voices singing in something close to canon. Um, the higher voice starting the same line shortly after the lower. It's a lovely effect. The voices are fine. And they are Romana Kruzikova, Monika Yagorova, both on soprano, and Yiri Miroslav Prochazka singing bass. There's a dancing, vibrato-less strings accompanying. So this is like the Baroque era, no vibrato, and the strings were very little. The themes were all catchy and appealing, and really must have cheered its original audience. Yes, I want to say, Tuma, you're going to hear this throughout this album. He's got good melodies. He's he's really catchy. I mean, these are church works, but they would have had you kind of uplifted in the church, I think, um, Mm. if you had heard this there. Sounds very celebratory. Third part to victo Mortis bold bright harmony from the choir is featured in this movement a nice counterpoint to the second movement and uh, the second and third movement are kind of a separation of what we heard combined in the first movement uh, I think uh, it's structurally satisfying the way he set this up the fourth track trombesona the trumpet sounds so this is kind of I don't know some turkey shoot old brass provide a brief fanfare <laughs> I really like those, like, valveless yeah. uh, <laughs> sort of brass instruments, really. It's a very different sound than the modern-day ones. Uh Like the oldest style of timpani at the beginning, this is very appealing in the context. I really like these old sounds a lot, and this is really what... One of the things that brought me to classical music in the 80s was this whole period instruments movement. I just thought it was really interesting to, to mm. listen to, and I'm still enjoying it. Here in my uh middle age, <laughs> or maybe late middle age, I don't know. Track 5, Te Ergo Quasimus. This is g- marked grave. Solemn harmonies with marked rhythm are heard in this very brief 54-second movement. And the sixth track, Eterna Fac Allegro. The soloists are back for this final movement. And the notes credit Monika Yagorova singing alto and Jakob Kubin singing tenor only. But surely we're hearing Jiři Miroslav Prochazka singing bass as well. Second half of the movement is a triumphant section sung by the choir and propelled by a noble Rhythm, so noble meaning kind of slow and stately. Hmm. It ends on a brief cadence, Baroque style. An appealing work, rather sunny and very enjoyable. Tracks 7 through 10 are an instrumental work, Symphonia XC. This was probably written towards the end of Tumas' life, since it has the movement scheme of classical composers like Haydn and Mozart. It has like, you know, fast, slow, menuet, fast. And it's a one-off among Tumas' compositions, the That whole form, the fast slow menu at fast, began appearing in the 1760s and especially in Haydn's music. There's only one known copy of this piece too and it's maintained at the Staatsbibliothek zu Berlin or the Berlin State Library in English. While the manuscripts whereabouts are not known, we just have a copy. Anyway, four movements, pretty standard, almost classical work. The first movement, Allegro, has an interesting opening with fast lines that speed up interrupted by slower (laughs) lines never heard anything Mm. like this because the classical style didn't really go like this it features mostly strings with brass punctuating certain harmonies this is especially worth hearing for its odd juxtapositions of slow and fast very unusual in any kind of baroque or classical era work yeah baroque works tend to be perpetual motion if they're Mm. fast they just keep going and there's no silence at all and also this movement is rather witty in a different way than haydn's music is it's not a wittiness that caught on really Haydn kind of stamped his wit on this classical style but uh, this this has a bit of wit in it as well the second movement andante isn't terribly slow it's rather a calm and flowing with a burbling melodic string line and a bass marking the time and a rhythm beneath it's a charming movement third movement menuetto and trio uh, this has a uh, this really very uh vivid, like, minuet uh, rhythm to it, as is the case with so many of Haydn's menuettes. It's a bit fast for a menuet if it's being danced to at the time, as is often the case with symphonic menuettes. They tend to go a little faster. At the 50-second mark, we get the trio, slightly lighter in rhythm, if not in orchestral texture, than the opening menuette. At a minute and 48 seconds, the opening menuette theme is back. And finally, the fourth movement, Allegro. This has a really dance kind of quality to it, In keeping with the dance feel of the menuet, it's kind of a nice sort of companion to that. Again, Tuma juxtaposes his opening thematic material with contrasting, quieter, rushing sections. It's appealing and also brief at 2 minutes and 31 seconds. And then we get to the highlight of the, or the really, I don't know about the highlight, but the main work of the disc. Uh, Misa Veni Popperum. This is a full mass. Tuma was Kapellmeister at the court of Count Franz Ferdinand Kinsky when he wrote this work. It was written for the Schottenstift, a Benedictine abbey in Vienna, founded in the 12th century as a monastery for the Idoschotten, or Irish monks, pursuing a mission in Austria. I guess they commissioned him. All right, first we get the Kyrie. First, and this is divided into three uh, tracks. Track 11, Kyrie Eleison, has a period instrument trumpet ringing out to open the piece, and we hear four of the soloists singing interweaving lines, often two at a time. For me, the voice of the tenor Jakub Kubin stands out here for its sweetness and appeal. After the soloists, the second half of this section is taken by sections of the choir, singing in similar fashion to the soloists, only with massed voices. Kriste Eleison starts with a prolonged string introduction, outlining the melodic themes, and soprano Romana Kuzikova sings the vocal line which is full of melisma. Very satisfying. I love melisma. Melisma, for those that don't know, is um, when you have a vowel sound and you stay on that vowel and just vary the notes. And uh, it's just a beautiful sound. Very common in the Baroque and the Renaissance era. The 13th uh, track is the the repeat of the Kyrie. But uh, this is sung only by the choir here. The harmonies enter mast and are accompanied by an organ. So it's not a musical repeat. It's just a repeat of the words. After the initial statement, a fugato section begins with voices interweaving. I really enjoyed the writing in this andante section and the singing as well. Okay, we get to some of the longer sections of the mass now. First, the Gloria, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, track 14. It starts with loud massed harmonies. The choir's lines are punctuated by brass chords. We move to track 15, laudamus te. Um this has a more flowing string introduction playing florid melodies. We hear alto Monica Yagorova and tenor Jakub Kubin in duet here. And again, I'm attracted to Kubin's tone. He has a smooth Italian baroque style of singing and this the, the really the ideal kind of voice at least these days for that kind of music. We hear um some vibrato creeping into his and Yagorova's tones on longer held notes, which is not a bad thing. It brings some extra expression. Track 16, Domine Deus. This has a bit of a flow to it as the chorus sings soft, focused harmonies as the strings play florid lines beneath them. There's a Baroque trumpet solo at the 42nd mark, rather a surprise. Uh, Then the soprano, Pavla Radostova, sings a solo line accompanied by the trumpet, the strings providing harmony. Radostova has the lower lines of the two sopranos on this album, and I like her tone as well. In fact, uh, the other soprano, Romana Kruzikova, won't be heard again in this work, having sung her part in the Kyrie and Kriste sections. So I'm drawn towards uh, her, Romana's um, singing in this section, Kruzikova's singing in this section, and we will bid her farewell for the rest of the album at this point. We move on to track 17, Qui tolis peccatamundi. The music slows down and forms into chorale-like chords as the mass strings and voices sing in harmony. At a minute and eight seconds, there's a low brass instrument, which I think is a kind of trombone, uh, that gets a brief solo before the bass, Giri Miroslav Prochazka and tenor Jakub Kubin sing in duet. Track 18, Qui seres ad dextrem patris. Uh, The tempo picks up as the chorus sings short lines, followed by the various soloists. We hear all of them in various duet combinations in this movement. The ear is always surprised by the changing timbres in this work, and really on this album, it's a very inventive, I guess, mm-hmm. tuma is very inventive with his orchestration. There's a sort of fugato that starts around the minute 45 seconds in the chorus. Now, fugato is like a fugue where you have individual voices coming in at separate times, but it doesn't continue strictly like a fugue, so fugato. Track 19, we have a new prayer, the Credo, the longest prayer in the mass, but it's sort of um sort of compacted here a little bit. In track 19 the choir has the entire movement. It starts with a bass introduction after which the chorus comes in and sings the Credo text festively. Track 20 picks up at the words et incarnatus est, he was uh, he became flesh. The low brass solos in harmony start this out, and I love the period brass sound they produce in harmony. Alto Monika Yagarova and tenor Jakub Kubin duet afterwards, both with appealing voices. The brass contrasts heavily with the sound they produce that these two soloists produce, much lower and uh, brassier, I guess you could say, in timbre. There's a Fugato-style entry for the sections of the chorus afterwards, sung solemnly. This is the crucifixious part where Christ's crucifixion is recounted, so we have some solemn singing. Track 21, et resurrects it, and he was he rose from the dead. As you can imagine, uh, we get bright, lively brass here and dancing string lines because this is the happiness of the uh, the saving of us all. The choir's lines are uniform in harmony as in a chorale. Soprano Pavla Radostova, Alto Monika Yagarova sing in duet, after which tenor Jakub Kubin and bass Yuri prochaska Prochazka duet briefly. I particularly enjoyed the slowing effect at the end of Prochazka's line at a minute and 20 seconds. The chords come in for a prolonged Amen after this, lines intertwining and punctuated by brass fanfares and timpani hits. The Sanctus is next. Um, the chorus sings this in bright, solid harmony, all words sung together. And the vowels are scattered in the next brief Hosanna in Excelsior section. Track 23, Benedictus, a long string melody on violin, opens this section, and alto Monica Yagarova sings the text solo. Track 24, Hosanna in Excelsis, heavy brass at the beginning, after which the chorus comes in, accompanied by organ, along with the orchestral strings, brass punctuate the final Hosanna in Excelsis. Track 25, the final um, section of the Mass, Agnus Dei, mass vo- voices harmonize the text together we hear the bass Jiri Miroslav Prochazka sing the text solo then the chorus comes back in for one more statement and the end of the Agnus day is Dona Nobis Pacham sung by the chorus in big massed harmony ending on a final massed harmony on the word Pacham so this album it was an interesting discovery for me Tumas' music straddles the Baroque and classical eras in interesting ways, and he's always tuneful and appealing. This particular album features all festive music and is appealing and uplifting throughout. The ensemble has the measure of all of these works, and I found all of the vocal soloists to have immediately appealing voices and to sing in an appealingly understated way. So you're not getting anybody standing out and sort of stealing the show, as it were. They draw attention to their lines by not drawing attention to themselves, if you know what I mean. I like this kind of singing and wonder where we can hear these soloists outside of the Czech repertoire. I'd like to hear more of them. I thought the recording was a bit thin, favoring the higher treble end. Not so satisfying for uh, my aging ears. (laughs) I'd rather want to hear more bass. But perhaps younger listeners will get more out of it. The recording all in all could have used more dimensionality, this is really a complaint I could level at any super fun recording, but I think it's their aesthetic and I can't really say much about that. Details do emerge clearly though, so there's no problem there. Don't let any sound limitations stop you from hearing this immediately appealing music, however. Composers from this era can often surprise by the way they form their musical ideas, and Tuma is a good example. Czech composers from the Baroque through the Romantic eras, and really up to today, are consistently interesting and should be heard more often. Uh, This is a good example of why I really liked this album, and I would encourage you to hear it.
0: I really enjoyed this one a lot, too. It's all good, but the mass is especially very spirit-lifting. It's just got this great positive energy, put me in a great mood listening to this. Uh, I don't think anyone has heard this composer before, like you said. And what struck me right away is the amazing counterpoint in his music. There's lines going everywhere, and you've got all these interesting things to follow with your ears. And what's really interesting is the way he works in the brass and vocals together in a lot of the movements. And you see sometimes you've just got real walls of vocal sound that hit you. And then other times you got weaving voices and these brass lines that are just really cool to listen to. Uh there's some really inspiring trumpet sounds on here. And then that other I don't know, you said trombone I Tend to lean towards a it's horn a or, or something. Instrument. Yeah, okay. it could be a lower, so maybe a French horn size. or an
1: early French horn. Yeah, yeah you
0: hear it in uh, that track seventeen, movement yeah. seven, and you think, well, that's really cool. And then in twenty, there's two of them that <laughs> come back in and they get no, you know doubled notice. up. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Uh, and it builds on yeah. itself. Uh, very energetic performances too. I didn't notice the. Flaws of the recording so much, but I was listening to it on my uh, smaller system, and I was just sort of taken into the Mm. high energy performance. It really conveyed a sense of joy and excitement.
1: Yeah, I don't think there were. I could call the recordings what I what I didn't like about the recording. It's flaws. I think they're really Mm. going for this sound, and I'm just Mm. not a. I just like fuller sound. So I'm just kind of, you know, talking about my own personal taste there. Okay. So, but just so listeners know, that's um. If, if anybody's attuned to what I, I, I think if you've listened to all hundred episodes, you might be attuned to what I like by now. <laughs> and you can figure out if, whether you like the same thing or not. I remember when I was reading uh, Gramophone Magazine, there were certain um, critics who, you know, they would have certain opinions about music and I could almost predict what they were going to be. And right. uh, they would always like, disagree with me you know and um in a way it was a good thing because you're like oh this guy doesn't like this that means i'll like it (laughs) you know you got that sort of thing that happens Uh, but i think that's good if you as long as you're consistent in your taste listeners will know kind of how to judge what you're saying you know because you you can't really make objective statements about music it's really a very personal thing anyway speaking of um subjective statements this next (laughs) record (laughs) of Arvo Pert, uh the most performed uh, living composer of last year, a recording of his uh, Stabat Mater and other pretty famous works. I thought I'd listen to this and we'd enjoy this as much as the Renault Capuzon recording we heard last year, and we have the Stabat Mater at the end. But this was a very unusual recording. First of all, the uh singers on it are Alexandra Kurzak on soprano, Andreas Scholl on countertenor, And Roberto Alagna, tenor. Now, if you're as old as I am, you remember that a lot of these um singers were popular ten to twenty years ago, and they they, so they're kind of towards um they're 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 in middle age now, which for a singer is getting a you know it's it's usually the time where you'd start if you're in your forties you start singing Wagner I think at that time you'd blow out your voice and then you'd end your career once you're in your fifties yeah you're just gonna sing like lighter stuff. Uh, One of the issues. We had with, say, someone like Pavarotti as he kept singing way past, you know, these operatic things, way past uh, the time when he should have. And his voice actually broke in certain performances, which is really sad because he was such a great singer. But then then he started doing like a lot of pop music with, um, you know, Michael Bublé and (laughs) people (laughs) like that. I don't know. Anyway, this is with the Morphing Chamber Orchestra conducted by Tomasz Vabnik. And it's on the Aparte label, which is a French label. The Morphing Chamber Orchestra is pretty interesting. They were created during the 2006 Gaude Mater Festival in Poland. So I guess they just kind of got together for that and they stayed together. Okay, well, this some um, ensemble and Tomasz Womnik are not going to give us the spiritual still Arvo Parrot that we're used to. They're really going to take some chances here. And uh, you'll have to listen to see whether you think they succeed or not. I was kind of a little. Not terribly satisfied with this album, although I found it interesting to listen to. Now, the first work, track one, is Fratres, and um, if you're not familiar with this work, you should go right now to hear an ECM recording of it, played by Guidon Kramer on violin and Keith Jarrett on piano, which is the best ever and probably will remain the best ever <laughs> recording of this work ever made. Now... There's also a great one that we talked about last year by Renaud Capuçon uh, playing the violin. This piece was written in 1977, and it was written without fixed instrumentation. There are like loads, more than 20, I think, um, arrangements of it for different instruments, including a really beautiful one for eight cellos, which you can hear on that same ECM album I just recommended. And uh, this particular version that we're going to hear now uh, for String Orchestra was arranged in 1983. So I should say string, orchestra, and percussion. The percussionist is Ruben Ramirez. So this piece has the proper hypnotic feel to it with the gentle droning bowed bass, which we don't get in the piano and violin version because the piano can't really drone, it fades. So when you have strings, you can just keep the bass kinda, you know, the bow moving over the string and have that droning sound. And the high bowed strings are played the opening melody. The melody is taken fairly quickly it's a pretty fast tempo and um The way they play this it's hard to get a sense of the changing time signature because each measure has a different number of beats It's I think it's supposed to throw you off so that you're not kind of falling into like a, a rhythm and Given the melody a more anxious feel and less of a calm one and I personally think that's a mistake I think this wants to be a calm piece The percussion booms in the bass in what is really a richly realized recording. I like the subtle boost the subwoofer gives to the bass drum if you happen to have a subwoofer. Like Ravel's Bolero, you get the same theme slightly reorchestrated every time you hear it. The reorchestration occurs mostly in the accompanying harmony. It's subtle and beautiful, a treat for the ear. There are dramatic ebbs and flows to this piece that we just don't really get here. It just sort of flows by in a gorgeous, though a little fast way. Okay, the next piece. My Heart's in the Highlands. This is uh, written to a poem by Robert Burns that many listeners might know. This piece was written in the year 2000, and it was written for uh, Countertenor and Organ originally. Now here, this arrangement made in 2013 has Countertenor, uh, sung by Andrea Scholl, and String Trio. Possibly, now the um, listings don't say who the three... uh, players in the string trio are? I'm going to guess that they are Yuki Wong wang on violin, Tomasz Wobnick on viola, and uh, Tomasz Darak on cello, and uh, Marek Ruzinski on piano. That's more than three people. A string trio on piano. Okay. Now, I first heard this particular piece. It was written in 2000, but it was featured in the uh, the film, uh, Paolo Sonantino's 2013 film, The Great Beauty, which was... Um, I think it may have even won the uh, best um, foreign film Oscar that year. And it's a really beautiful film. If you haven't seen it, you should. That particular version was for soprano and organ. And that's the only version I've ever heard of this for soprano and organ that's been recorded. It's usually recorded for the um, counter tenor and organ. But it became famous in that style after 13 years of being relatively unknown. Although it's been recorded in its original version before. Now, after that movie, it's being recorded fairly often, and this is the first time I've ever heard this piece in this arrangement. And I got to tell you, I prefer the otherworldly organ version, although here the otherworldliness is provided by the countertenor, Andrea Scholl's vocal. He's got a very unusual voice, as um, fans from maybe 20 years ago might remember. And We haven't really heard him on on record so much lately. He still sounds very good, I have to say. Uh, The String Trio winds up making the piece feel rooted to earth as opposed to floating in space, which the organ does. And I feel like the string trio, just because of its earthy quality, removes something magical that the organ version had of just placing notes in space, whereas here they're kind of phrased um, by the uh, string players. It just sounds too warm and it shouldn't, in my opinion. The warmth makes it earthbound and takes away its magic. It's like this arrangement has reversed the warm, odd juxtaposition between organ and countertenor. So we're getting the oddness from the countertenor here and the warmth from the string trio, when it really should be the opposite, (laughs) or at least it is in the Mm. other arrangement. But I think this is intentional. I really think that um, the ensemble and the music director want to um, present us with something different. And so Mm. this is a pretty interesting experiment, I have to say. Uh, the focus here is all on Scholl's very unique counter tenor timbre, which isn't warm at all. It's, it's, and purposely so. It's worth a listen, but if you don't know this piece, seek out a recording for either soprano or counter tenor and organ. I just wasn't satisfied by this arrangement, though the performance is very fine. The, uh, third track, Vater Unser, Our Father. This is the, uh, Christian Prayer. Um, this was written in 2005 for counter tenor or boy soprano or children's choir. And piano. Here in 2013 we get an arrangement for countertenor, again Andrea Scholl, and string orchestra. Now this is a piece I'm not familiar with in its original arrangement so I'm hearing this fresh here. The full string orchestra is heard with light strings. It's got a bit of warmth, acceptable here. Uh, Scholl's voice really never changes in timbre. He's always got that unique kind of ice-cold tone that draws the ear, and he has beautiful phrasing. My issue here is that the arrangement, coupled with the same soloist, makes this seem of a piece with the previous My Hearts in the Highlands, and I would guess that's on purpose. It sounds richer than that work with the full-string orchestra, and it's also a piece I'd like to get to know better. I did like the piece. Track four, Spiegel im Spiegel, is a very famous piece for originally for violin and piano. And it could also be for viola or cello and piano. Uh, Here we're getting the viola, played perhaps by Tomasz Wabnik. He's the director of the ensemble, so I'm guessing it's him. And the piano, Marek Ruzinski. So this is pretty traditional. It's in its original guise. It's a simple piece, very satisfying, very hypnotic too. And you're probably familiar with it from movies. The tempo is beautifully judged to be slow so that the viola's dark hues can be savored. This is a really good performance of this piece. Track five, Es Zang vor langen which kind of translates to something like long years ago or a long time ago. It was many years ago or something like that. 1984, and this is for countertenor, Andreas Scholl again, violin, who I'm guessing is Yuki Wong because he's the concertmaster, and viola, Tomaj Vabnik, the director of the ensemble. I'm guessing there, because the booklet doesn't, mention, doesn't list who the uh, solo chamber players are. There's an interesting opening to this, um, with the strings playing a quick tremolo figure. Then Shaw enters solo to sing his line, which has a waltzing feel to it. Um, this is a poem about a nightingale song, reminding the vocalist of the loss of a lover. There are instrumental interludes between certain verses. The first is after the third verse, and they're lovely in the typical Arvo Pert way. Uh, sounding spare and contrapuntal. The overall tempo is slow and satisfying, giving enough time for the emotion of the words to register. Scholl has such a pure, emotionless voice that it's the words and not the tone that register. Well, the tone registers, but not the emotion, let's say. After the last verse, we get another instrumental section, this time with a straight Siciliano rhythm that brings us to the end of the piece. Uh, This one sounded like it was, uh, it seemed like it ended quickly. Mm -hmm. Track six, Ein Walfahrtslied. Uh, This is uh, 1984 for tenor or baritone and string quartet. Now, in this 2021 arrangement, we hear countertenor and string orchestra. The countertenor, of course, is Andreas Scholl again. He's pretty much the soloist on all of these up until the uh, last work. The text for this is taken from Psalm 121. And the orchestral strings opening features sustained notes with gentle waves of mid-range strings rocking back and forth. The waves go into the very high range of the violins and are feather-lightly bowed and very quiet and gentle. The vocal starts at 2 minutes and 11 seconds, so pretty late into the piece. Uh, Scholl has the same timbre on every song, not shading anything. His appeal is in the rather strange tone he gets, really unique tone. Other countertenors don't sound like this. And he he sounds a little, given what we've been hearing from countertenors lately. They've really changed the game a little bit. I like the subtle sul ponticello on the strings as Schull sings. A descending instrumental line follows the sixth verse, after which the voice resumes in a higher range with the reassurance that the uh, Lord will watch over your life both now and evermore. Beautiful lyrics, really. This is practically declaimed in a high vocal range. The final three-plus minutes of the piece are dedicated to string lines only. We hear that descending line again. There's an occasional plucked bass note that resonates quietly but beautifully. Again, excellent recording, capturing the quality of the string tone, as well as Scholl's voice. The strings drop out one by one until we're left with a single string playing a single note at the end, which stops. Very beautiful. Track seven, Summa. So this is a little bit of a palate cleanser. It's for string orchestra only. There are no vocals here. This piece was written in uh, 1977 for a cappella voices, if you can believe it. Um, this string orchestra version was written in uh, 1991. I've never heard the a cappella voices version of this. Summa was written when Peret was living in Soviet-era Tallinn in Estonia, his home country. The atheist cultural politics of the time had the composer writing his religiously motivated message in code. So summa is a Latin term for a summary of all knowledge. And this piece is based on the text of the Latin credo. Parrott says he used his highly formalized compositional system at its strictest here. The seemingly simple piece is full of symbolic meaning and musical complexity. At the time, it couldn't be about a religious um, subject, but he made it about that by sort of disguising it in code, which I find very interesting. So in the performance here, an instrumental palette Cleanser? The cleanness and purity of the string lines on this track are always wonderful, as they are here. The ensemble beautifully inflects their brief lines, getting the parrot sound perfectly here. It's not in every track. Excellent bass sound on the low end? This really is an excellent recording. So let me um credit the uh, people who made it. Little Tribeca made the recording. Artistic directors and sound engineers were Nicholas Bartolomé and Hugo Skremin, and they were assisted by Christoph's Andres Austers the editing mixing and mastering was by Emily Ruby. Okay, so now we get to the title track and the longest piece on the album and boy this was uh <laughs> this really brought up a lot of ideas for me. First of all, it's for three voices and string trio originally and uh our director Tomasz Vobnik, made this some um, adaptation for the string orchestra in 2021. The original piece was written in 1985. So we're going to hear counter-tenor Andrea Scholl, soprano Alexandra Kurzak, and tenor Roberto Alagna, a string orchestra, and then Christian Ernie is the conductor here. This is the first recording that Alexandra Kurzak and Roberto Alagna have made in this repertoire. So they usually sing romantic opera. The three vocal approaches and timbres are in high contrast, oh boy, I can't (laughs) emphasize that enough. These voices don't blend at all, and this is also intentional according to the uh, director it starts with high heavenly strings that slowly and gently descend to earth like a blessing from the heavens it's a nice opening gesture the soprano comes in at around the two minute and 20 second mark with a very high note while the tenor has a theme in the middle range and the counter tenor falls in between the sound these three make together is very odd These vocal timbres don't blend at all. They're all very different from each other, and they're not really trying to blend either. Uh, Schultz sounds reedy singing in his lower end, and Alanya, warm and burnished as he descends lower. He was a popular opera singer back in the 90s, and um, he's a bit past his prime now, but he sounds mostly fine at this point. The recording is close and very unforgiving, as I mentioned earlier. It's an excellent recording, but maybe the singer should have been distanced a little bit. Normally you want them to be up close like they are here. But uh I'll get to that in a minute. Alexandra Kurzak sounds fine in her high end, but can get shrill there. Uh there's some insecurity at times when she's in her lower range. And interestingly, when Alanya gets up into his higher range, he gets a little insecure as well. They both actually sound wounded in the their tone as they <laughs> sing, as I guess some um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm-hmm. was wounded seeing her son die on the cross. I'm wondering if that's a uh, an interpretational um, sort of effect. I have to say, in a world where singers are chosen for the compatibility to each other's individual timbre, this is a bold choice of sound world for a performance of this piece. It certainly makes one sit up and take notice. The individual lines are all thrown into high relief against each other. As the work goes on, the soprano and tenor engage in a more operatic style – there's a deliberateness to the soloist phrasing that I would guess has more to do with the conductor's interpretation than anything the singers brought to the piece. Uh, some of the ensemble singing has some harsh edges, especially at around the 19th minute, and I can't tell whether it's the closeness of the recording on dissonant harmonies or if it's the soloist going off tone. In the end, the vocal choices are an interesting experiment, but I'd really prefer what has become a more traditional approach to this piece without operatic, uh, sort of vibrato and big voices, but something a little more sort of vibrato-less and sort of light, let's say. Uh, One thing about this performance that let me down is that with the contrasting voices, the orchestra part winds up sounding earthbound. It doesn't lift the vocals to a higher plane. So I was a little dissatisfied, I think, by this um, performance of the Stabat Mater, although eh, it's a pretty interesting uh, experiment. I want to say that. As with so many albums of Parrot's music, uh, this is a highly meditative album. Uh, I would have liked more variety in the sound. There are strings on every track. Andrea Scholl sings on all of the vocal tracks, always solo, except for the Stabat Mater. And his voice may take some adjusting, too. Uh, we now hear countertenors with more emotional inflection in their singing. But Scholl was famous for just this tone that we're hearing here back in the day. And we hear he, he's still like that. The album as a whole attempts a different sound and approach to Pert's very stationary spiritual music, and as a result, it comes off, like I said, more earthbound. It's certainly listenable and even intriguing, but I'd prefer it the way we generally hear it. I feel this album, though its experimentation with vocal timbres, tempos, and arrangements, removes a lot of the magic from Pert's music. It's still beautiful, but there's no transcendent quality, which is what really made Pert... Um, the most performed living composer. Still, albums like this have a way of getting you to hear the music anew, and I say fans of Parrot's music should probably just give this a listen. It will send the message that the music you listen to doesn't have to sound the way you're used to hearing it, and that the magic, though present in the score, needs to be drawn out of it by interpretative decisions and insights.
0: This was something different as I get more used to Parrott's music, uh, there were some familiar aspects, but overall kind of an uneven up impression was left on me, you know, going through the performances. Yeah. But I did find things that I come to look for in his music. So the first piece, I got a really nice, simple and meditative kind of feeling from it, which I do get from a lot of his <laughs> music uh, that we've yeah, heard yeah. here. And then... But I think there are better performances of that piece. Right. I don't know what it was. Too. You do yeah. So. My Heart's in the Highlands. This was interesting to me because, you know, the vocal melody, if you listen to this, it's a static melody. It just stays Mm -hmm. on the one note. it's a single note. And what that does is it forces you to focus on the enunciation of the text that's in that line. So I thought that was really interesting, and it really drew me into the rhythm of those words. Uh, Also, let's see, the third piece is rather static as well, but has a little bit more uh, movement with the Lord's Prayer there. Uh, so it sort of right. naturally kind of builds on that feeling. The summa I enjoyed a lot. The uh, string sound seemed to have kind of a, a folk quality built into it. And when then the bass comes in, it's really full and deep. And I found that piece really meditative and uh, peaceful as well. But the Stabat Mata really is a different character altogether it's uh kind of stark and stern in atmosphere which is accentuated by as you say the kind of distinct the of approach rather yeah. and then it's really yeah. long so it started to wear me out <laughs> after about yeah. uh, you know 20 minutes uh almost 20 minutes but then after 20 minutes or so it really kind of calms down and reaches a peace hmm. just more learning of Parrott's music and different interpretations for me with this recording.
1: I just want to say to listeners, if you've never heard Parrott's um, arrangement of uh, My Heart's in the Highlands, I, I wouldn't listen to this one first. Go to, I think, man, who did this? I can't remember. It might be Paul Hillier and Theater of Voices that recorded this with the organ and the soprano. And that's the version used in the, um if I have the performers right, in the film The Great Beauty. And that, that's a stunning version of it. It's usually for counter tenor and organ, and there are recordings of that. This one in Hyperion and one of their Arvo mm-hmm. parent recordings. Yeah, it's magical. It's absolutely magical with the organ, and I would hear that version first. Then I would I'd come to this one later. I, I think it's just too good a piece to you know yeah. to have a, to hear this one first and think, ah, this is just okay. Anyway, yeah, I thought that was the piece that kind of let me down the okay. most on this album. Well, because of the performance, not because right. of um, you know. The piece, anyway. My third um, album for uh, this week is a rather uh, adventurous uh, guitar yeah. music album <laughs> <laughs> that I really enjoy. Let me add, I'll explain why. Now we were talking about this yesterday, but Russ and I went out for our 100th episode uh, celebration, yeah. and we were talking about this album. And I was, I said to him, "Okay, I'm going to try to win you over to some of these pieces because I really liked this album. It's called Changes." Contemporary guitar music by Cage, Carter, dashout, Campella, and Reich. <laughs> okay. The guitarist is Arturo Tallini. He's Italian. And um, this is on the Naxos label. Okay. Let me just start out by saying a contemporary composer. This this sort of thing drives me crazy. A contemporary composer is a person who's alive now. And two of these composers aren't alive now. John Cage and Elliot Carter died some time ago especially john cage hmm. it should have been subtitled uh, half contemporary guitar music <laughs> because only three of the works are by living composers the other three are by dead composers and none of them are younger than us all of the composers on this album are older than us and that that means they're kind of getting up there in years anyway the first piece we hear is one i actually posted about this on facebook on our Facebook page. You can check that out. Steve Reich, who's a minimalist composer who uses a lot of percussion and uh, rhythm especially in his music, like juxtaposed rhythms and sort of things like that. This piece is called Electric Counterpoint from 1987. If you're a classical music listener, you should absolutely own an album of this piece and uh, different trains. The the Electric Counterpoint on the Nonesuch label, Electric Counterpoint, where the soloist is Pat Metheny, and uh, different trains where the uh Kronos quartet are the uh on the string quartet playing the piece. That's a a classic album in, in uh contemporary classical music. So if you want to be credible as <laughs> someone <laughs> who likes this kind of music, you you really need that album. That's one of the along with the one I mentioned in the parrot one with uh, Keith Jarrett and uh Guidon Kramer playing the Avro Parrot works. Okay. So this piece um was originally conceived for Pat Metheny who played on that album and this is part of a series of uh, multi-tracked instrumental pieces by Reich uh, written for a soloist playing against multiple pre-recorded parts now this particular one has 11 guitar parts and two bass parts and in a live performance the soloist plays the 11th part with the tape presumably in the studio he's multi-tracking his guitar so this sounds like a lot of work I really don't know how that works now here Arturo Tallini pays tribute to his late colleague, Domenico Ashone, who passed away in 2017 by playing over Ashone's self-recorded tape of the pre-recorded electric counterpoint. So I think what this means is that Tallini is playing a, like a live performance with all of the other guitars that he's playing over by Domenico Ashone, the tape that he used. It might not all be Ashone's playing, but it's the tape he made that he was going to solo with. I think that's what this means. Asshoni's uh, original version was reworked by Tallini for this album. And despite being on one track here, this is a three-movement work uh, using the conventional classical structure, fast, slow, fast. It really should have been divided into three tracks so that we could follow it more easily. The first movement uses a theme, Reich says, was derived from Central African horn music, introduced to the composer by ethnomusicologist Simha Aram. It builds in an eight-voice canon with pulsing harmonies beneath. Don't try to follow the canon. This is moving so fast that it's really hard to, <laughs> to really even know that it's a canon. You really need to be told first. While the soloist highlights melodic patterns resulting from the counterpoint generated between the parts. Which, and that's really cool. I, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, the tempo is halved in the second movement and changes key to introduce a new theme that builds on nine guitars in canon. And again, the soloist brings out distinctive melodic patterns. Uh, Reich returns to the tempo and key of the first movement for the third movement, introducing a new pattern in triple time and enjoying the rhythmic combinations that this offers. Here the melodies operate at different speeds, dancing in hazy syncopations. So what the soloist is doing here is he's hearing these massive guitars and all these different lines playing in canon, and he's pulling out melodies that are formed by the different layers, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, he's kind of like putting them together into his own sort of um, how he's hearing it. It's really interesting. I've actually heard this work many times, including the Pat Metheny version. Of course, I have a CD of this. This particular performance seems urgent and rapid. And also it's much better recorded than the uh, Metheny version because it's more modern. Okay. It's very crisp. Uh, Shoney's recorded tape sounds Really first rate. Uh, this is a clean, highly detailed recording. Very needly. It's got like a needle, pinpoint kind of quality in its attack with pinpoint picking as well. Whereas the Matheny version kind of has Pat Matheny's tone. I mean, he has this. He plays like himself. He can usually. He's he's got. He's got one of those sounds that you always know it's him. And he gets that kind of Matheny positivity and warmth when he plays. Uh, Tallini though is is playing in a different style here. At two minutes and 12 seconds, the material changes. We can hear the pre-recorded material, which is where Tallini, more toward the center and seeming to shift from left to left to right, picks out elements of the left channel themes and highlights them with his electric guitar. So I'm guessing that the pre-recorded tape is all in the left channel on this album, making it easier to hear Tallini's um, offering. Although <laughs> hearing all that detail in one channel only is a little annoying i would have liked to have heard it it makes it easier to follow though in the way that tallini has put this um together okay at four minutes and 33 seconds sorry the opening rhythm returns with tallini still pulling material out of the pre-recorded material at six minutes and 52 seconds the first movement tape fades out and we get the half time you know you played at half the speed second movement starting at six minutes and 55 seconds this has a more chimey quality to it, which by the way, the Methaney version does not. With the pre-recorded tape in the left channel and Tallini across the spectrum again, notice how he's uh, united different lines heard in the left channel. At 8 minutes and 43 seconds, the first movement opening theme starts fading in and out, giving some urgency to the chiming guitar to quit the slower material and return to the faster tempo. At 10 minutes and 17 seconds, we suddenly find ourselves in the third movement with a more syncopated line, which the solo guitar articulates with all sorts of different patterns. Yeah, this is pretty great. It's very clear as well. Okay, so this is really an interesting uh performance of this. It's probably the most interesting of the three movements, the last one. And the solo guitar gets a bit louder at the end and ends on an appealing final note. I really like this piece a lot. And I really like Steve Reich in general. We may be hearing a little bit more of him uh, in the near future on this podcast, but I would encourage you to hear this piece and this performance of it, as well as the methane. they're both different and they're both very good for different reasons.
0: Mm.
1: All right. So the, uh, second, uh, track, John Cage piece, a room, and this is arranged by Tallini. This piece was written in 1943 and uh, Tallini made his arrangement in 2021. Cage didn't write much for the guitar. Uh, but his prepared piano works can sound guitar-like, and with this in mind, Tallini arranged this work originally for voice and prepared piano. It was originally intended for a work called She is Asleep and was extracted by Cage as a standalone piece for piano, apparently prepared piano. This actually sounds a bit like a prepared piano, but it's a guitar, prepared guitar. (laughs) This is the first time I've heard something like this on the guitar. Fascinating sounds are heard to a steady mechanical rhythm, it would be wonderful, you might think, to see this work performed, and you can. There's a video of Tallini playing it on YouTube, which I posted on our Facebook site. You should definitely check it out. The third track, Elliot Carter, Changes, from 1983. This was written for the guitarist uh, David Starobin. Carter described it as, Music of mercurial contrast of character and mood, unified by its harmonic and rhythmic structure. Yeah, um, this is not going to be an easy one to, uh, describe because, uh, the moods change very quickly. It takes the form of a conversation with phrases resembling spoken sentences. I wouldn't have guessed that if I hadn't read that, but there are exclamations and appropriate pauses between the dialogue and these exchanges get more intimate towards the middle of the piece. You can hear them getting quieter and towards the end, a sustained style of writing confirms the influence of a bell ringing patterns heard as if from afar. Moods do indeed flash by in this piece. You should think of it as like, uh, you know how in a conversation you sort of somebody will say something unimportant and you'll say something and you don't really remember what the other person said because it wasn't like that. It, it It's a bit like that because things go by so fast. If you're like us um, living in Japan, you can think of it as like a Japanese haiku where the poet utters an image and if you're not paying attention, you miss it. It just goes by. It kind of happens hmm. to the music here. The conversational element of the piece sounds hard to put across, with its sudden changes of dynamic level, tone, and overall mood, but Tallini puts them all across, and it's a pretty remarkable performance. This is not really an immediately appealing work, but I think it's one that can grow on you. It's pretty interesting and inventive, some conversational elements start repeating toward the middle of the piece, giving it a structural cohesion, but the articulations always change. Both guitarist and listener have to be on their toes to catch the detail in this seven and a half minute piece. The bell sounds that we were promised in the notes are represented by the chords in the six minute to the end. Okay, now for the new stuff. James Dashow, born in 1944. Eyepiece <laughs> from 2019. Great title. I really enjoyed that. Now, Dashow is also from the United States. He's from Chicago. And he unites electronic and acoustic elements, combining live performance with computer music and using audio perspective as part of the composition process. So I'm reading from the notes now. Uh, This was written for Arturo Tallini. So he's the, uh, our performer is the dedicatee. Dashow describes it as a musical satire for guitar, octophonic electronic sounds, video, and some electronic gadgets. Uh, The video and electronic gadget elements are not included on this recording. The thoughts, in quotation marks, of the acoustic guitar are the starting point. The composer places these thoughts in a number of wider perspectives, with watery textures suggesting the guitar is being fed through a series of increasingly outlandish processes in a factory. (laughs) <laughs> this kind of put me this kind of put okay. me in the mood of if you know that Jacques Tati movie Mon Oncle you know if you haven't seen that you should check that one out too it's really fun it's from the 50s uh, soon it is uh, less a solo instrument and more a part of uh, Dachau's sound world uh, gradually the soloist regains control before retreating to the shadows at the end okay so this has a very angular opening and really you would think ah this isn't going to be an interesting piece but then you start hearing the electronic sounds and they're pretty intriguing and rich sounding and very varied as well and that's what really kept me going in this piece also i had the subwoofer on and there's some really deep resonant bass sounds on this that just come out and hit the solar plexus really well the guitar sort of noodles around and we hear a lot of these sounds There's a cool moment at 55 seconds when the guitar and electronics come together for a monophonic line very briefly, Uh, blink and you'll miss it, but it's really cool. There are interesting timbres. At the two minute mark, we hear only very distant electronic sounds. The guitar is echoing the electronic sounds at two minutes and 44 seconds. and I found this enjoyable and rather fascinating. All of the electronic sounds have dimension to them and pop surprisingly and unexpectedly out of the speakers. At five minutes and three seconds, we get electronic sounds sounding loudly and across the frequency range. By five minutes and 30 seconds, we hear ghostly, distant electronics. These gradually get louder and by now have taken over the piece. The guitar gets some patterns into the texture occasionally. A lot of the appeal of this piece is in the sound range and quality of the electronics. Now, that's not something I would normally say. I'm usually not a big fan <laughs> of electronic music, but I did kind of, uh, I was kind of engaged by this. I do wonder whether this would have uh, have any appeal out of your average computer speaker though. I had this on kind of a, a nicer sound system and it just really resonated well. You're in for a feast of electronic sounds from the five minute and 30 second mark all the way into the 12th minute. And when we suddenly hear the guitar asserting itself again in the 12th minute with sharply strummed chords. Uh, he's back in the forefront from this point on, but the electronics remain to provide atmosphere. The last minute of the piece has the guitar plucking harmonic notes as the electronics provide spacey sounds, it sounds like the guitar ends by plucking strings where the tuning pegs are, so they sound very high and almost no sustain. Track five, Arthur Kampela, born in 1960, percussion study three from 1997. This is the only non-U.S. composer on the album. This could have been a, hmm. a you know, a, an album of um, American meaning United States. Composers, but we have an American composer from Brazil here, (laughs) okay? American meaning from the Americas. He's in South America. Anyway, so he's Brazilian. He was born in Rio de Janeiro, and um, it's a very percussive culture, is it not? All sorts of percussive sounds are extracted from the guitar, with the guitarist also using a credit card and a bottleneck to extract unusual sounds. I I pulled out (laughs) the bottleneck sound pretty easily, but the credit card sound I wasn't so sure of. Uh, The actual tonal material is very angular and fragmented in this piece. But as in the previous piece, the percussive sounds are all fascinating, as the electronic sounds were in the previous piece. And here they're all provided by Tallini himself. I wish there were a video online for this piece, but I checked and couldn't find one. I would have liked to have, I think there's a visual element to watching the guitarist play this particular piece because he's making all these percussive Mm. sounds. And I'd like to see how he's doing it. It sounds like a piece one would want to see as well as hear, as I said. It's hard to describe this piece. There's a lot of knocking on the wooden frame of the guitar, scraping of strings, maybe with the credit card, and picking muted strings for a percussive effect. At the seven-minute mark, percussive vocal effects enter the picture, <laughs> where with, with the <laughs> guitarist, I guess, is now kind of making sounds with his mouth. He's vocalizing. Um, a new effect is heard at about 8 minutes and 50 seconds as glissandos, played this is probably the bottleneck providing an odd kind of hawaiian sort of effect on this and the bottle is slid up and down the guitar's neck Uh, the piece does a natural fade to the end with the vocalist hissing a decrescendo the last piece by john cage called dream arranged by arturo tallini was written in 1948 and arranged in 2021 and it was originally a piano piece with no preparations i think used to shadow choreography by Merce Cunningham. It starts out with a pretty arpeggiated pattern, gently played, and quite a change from the compola piece. It continues in this gentle, dreamy style for the duration of its 7 minutes and 40 seconds. There are no prepared instruments here. The arpeggiated figures make the guitar sound harp-like, and in fact, I bet this would sound fantastic on a harp. It's very beautiful. It's a good work to just relax to or fall asleep to. It's very dreamy sounding, really beautiful. Not something you would think of in a Cage piece, but he wrote music for all occasions. So there's some really lovely things in his catalog as well. Anyway, to sum up, this is a varied program of 20th century and contemporary guitar music. Notice how I changed the title (laughs) because uh, two of these composers are no longer living. Uh, The Reich piece was very enjoyable and I'd urge everyone unfamiliar with it to hear it and hear this performance as well as the Metheny. I think they're both excellent it's a classic 20th century work. The two cage works were both easy on the ear and the preparations on the guitar made a room intriguing. Make sure you see that on uh, YouTube as well or check our Facebook uh, page and you can see it there. I very much liked the Dachau work eyepiece with its bold electronics and the compola kept me interested for the same reason as the Dachau with the surprising effects. The guitarist Arturo Tolini is in full control throughout, provides sensitivity in the Cage pieces and compelling melodic ideas in the Reich. Some might find this album challenging, but it's a good way to immerse yourself into recent music, and I think the challenge can be met. So I would say challenge yourself and give this a listen.
0: Yeah, I'm not as enthusiastic about this as (laughs) you are overall. I find it a curiosity more than anything else. Uh, The Reich piece, it is... It's very hypnotic and can be rather repetitive if you get hung up in the rhythmic elements of it. What I found is focus on the variations that build out of the guitar part, and mm. then you can find sort of extended lines coming and building on that. And as I was listening to it, I found my ear drawn to that. So that was kind of interesting. The cages of a Room. I've seen something that reminded me of this sound before. I saw the uh, jazz guitarist Martin Taylor do a kind of prepared uh, guitar thing where he makes this similar sound, which reminded me here like a bass kalimba, I said. Uh, (laughs) It gets that uh, really low rhythmic part and then with the drum type of sounds on top of it. And then those ringing harmonics on top are kind of interesting. Uh, So it becomes something (laughs) unguitar guitar, like uh, a kind of interesting performance. The Carter, let's see the changes. I really picked up on the conversational exchange between like two speakers of some language that I couldn't understand, but the Mm. sort of back and forth between that became more pronounced as it went along. And then it, Sort of ends with those chordal ideas. Uh, So the sort of phrasing exchange was interesting in that to me. The eyepiece, yeah, (laughs) those electronic (laughs) sounds uh, took some. You just don't like the electronic sounds. Yeah, I'm not big into electronic music, but they were pretty interesting and a lot of variety and very clear in the recording as well. And let's see, percussion study. Yeah, everything's going on here scratching, slapping, snapped notes. And uh, vocalizations, I think I tried to quote one. I think I wrote it as sugar to dig Yeah.
1: I think he said one. <laughs> yeah. he said that at one point. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then it ends up with some uh, yeah bottleneck slide there too. So <laughs> I'm going to,
1: I'm going to like be sitting in a room one day and just exclaim that and see what happens. Sugar to dig Yeah. What was that thing that, uh, oh, who, who was it? The, the Godfather pizza guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he once he said in some meeting, Oh, it was Shooky Dooky, or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Sounds like something he would say. Herman Cain, that's who it was. Herman Cain.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Cage Dream, surprisingly, yeah, the ca- a Cage piece is the most melodic kind of yeah. thing on the thing. But this is Surprising, a really beautiful huh? piece. It really is. Because it's mostly these very pretty single note lines. Uh, the phrasing and yeah. playing is very relaxed. Let's give soft the name, it's A uh, Dream, the
1: last dream, yeah. uh, one on the album. Yeah
0: and uh, but then, briefly, around two and a half minutes, and then later around five minutes you you get some chord figures that are added and they're really added at just the right moment in the composition to help it take off even more and so. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, But probably, Mm -hmm. yeah, for guitarists especially, this would be interesting. As you say, I think this would be enjoyed um, mostly if you could actually watch the performances of everything because you'll be wondering uh, how and where some of those sounds are coming from. So, yeah, a visual uh, addition. You can watch that one video you put up, but I'd like to see how the guitar is prepared in uh, these other cases as well. All right, in the jazz... Program tonight. We've got uh, all organ guitar trios. And yeah. well, before I get to that, I actually put up on Facebook today. This would be one thing you can see if you do go check that out. So, not only uh, organ trio, but this is Isabel Bodense with a bass mm-hmm. flute. And,
1: oh, yeah, organ you showed me that earlier. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, the organ trio is cool enough, but add that huge flute, which is so big you have to actually play it on a stand that it sort of sits on. And that that video really knocked me out. So expect that to show Mm -hmm. up in some program. I guess I'll have to get some more jazz flute or something uh, going on and include that. But yeah, tonight we have one of our favorite formats to focus on. That's the guitar organ trio. So basically you've got jazz guitar, organ. In this case, all Hammond we have tonight, real Hammonds, and a drummer. Mm -hmm. And you can get all your bass sounds from the organ, and you have this usually really rich kind of uh, tonal center. Those instruments blend together really well. And uh, here, we're going to have a lot of variety. I really enjoyed all of these albums, and they're all quite different in character. So first up, we're going to start with the guitarist Mimi Fox and her Mimi Fox Organ Trio, new recording, One for Wes. This is on the Origin label, and it came out January 20th. And the organist here is Brian Ho, and he uh, brought this to my attention, so I've been waiting for it to come out. Anyway, first of all, about Mimi Fox, she was born in New York City. She started playing drums at 9 and then guitar when she was 10. And her first jazz album that she got when she was 14 was... John Coltrane's Giant Steps. That's a tough one to start out with. But apparently... It's one of the hardest uh, pieces to play in jazz. Apparently that uh, sort of was the inspiration and changed what she was doing musically. And then after that, right out of high school, she started touring, playing music, and settled in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's performed with big guitar names, Charlie Bird, Stanley Jordan, Charlie Hunter, and she's also played with Branford Marsalis, David Sanchez, Houston person, and organ masters, Joey Francisco, favorite of ours, Barbara, yeah. Denner Lane, and Dr. Lonnie Smith as well. And her previous recording, This Bird Still Flies, that came out in 2019, is an all-acoustic recording. We're going to hear some acoustic on this album as well, but do check out the unique version of Blue Bossa." on her previous recording, a jazz standard, a pretty cool version there. And so this one is her 12th album, either as leader or co-leader. And it's a celebration of the 100th anniversary of Wes Montgomery's birth. And so we're gonna have some Hammond B3 trio sound getting in that vein and some Montgomery inspired originals and a couple of cover tunes here. So Mimi Fox on electric and acoustic guitar Brian Ho, who we heard first, let's see, with Jim Witzel on "Feeling It," that came out last year in September, and we featured that in our episode eighty-seven Fall Frets. And Brian became kind of an enthusiastic fan of the podcast, and uh, he checks us out on Facebook, and so we we're happy about that
1: as well. Yeah, we're also becoming big fans of his playing as well. Yeah, with as the, well, even more, more so. We hear of him, yeah
0: on this Mm. recording here, and we've got Lorca Hart on drums. It's produced by Mimi Fox, recorded and mixed by Adam Munoz at Opus Studios, Berkeley, California. It was recorded April 25th and 26th of last year, 2022. So let's get into this music. Starts out with track one. This is Mimi Fox original, Mr. White's Blues. And everyone comes in right away on this bouncy beat tune. It's got a 24-bar melody with descending riffs that Fox and Hull work together. Hart's bass drum on the two and four really give it that bounce, and it breaks up for some guitar licks in bars 17 to 20 on that melody, uh, and then finishes with more descending riffs, uh, and they go around that twice. Then Fox starts out her solo, Some really cool muted lines in the lower register uh, before they take off swinging. That's one thing I noticed. She likes to get down in the lower register a lot, which is making a really nice contrast. This is a great solo to get things started here. Her lines are fluid, lots of variety mixed in, uh, short double time lines and double stops as well. I like the snappy triplet figures she peppers in from time to time before getting stuck on a couple of bluesy licks for a while. And then uh, she finishes it up with a fun chord solo, uh, getting outside of the chords a bit with some tension before resolving it and handing it over to Ho, and Hose had the bass pedals really pumping along, also adding tasty choppy chords behind the guitar solo. He starts out here working single-tone bluesy melody lines. He works up into the higher register for some rapid notes, comes down with some harmonic tension, gets bluesy again working into some trills and zippy runs, choppy phrases, and finishes it up with some descending lines. Fox and Ho trade eights going around with heart. She has a really crazy chord section uh, in one of those exchanges too. And they hmm. finish it up with another round of the melody with a big finish at the end. Track two is a tune all jazz fans and non-jazz fans should know it as well. This tune gets used on a lot of TV commercials on Japanese television, and that's <laughs> moanin. Yeah, I think this is in a lot of hip-hop songs too. Yeah, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers written by one of his pianists, Bobby Timmons, who had that really great funky style in all of his playing. Here, Fox gets a solo guitar intro starting with some licks and rapid repeated notes into fluid runs. She plays around with the famous riff on the way, then slows down on an ascending line, and then sets the groove with a cool riff. Drums join in, and after a couple of organ hits, Ho takes over on the organ, and it sounds wonderfully dirtier than usual over Mm. that really dark guitar riff. I like the articulation. Cause I'm used to hearing that on the horns, either Lee Morgan or Freddie Hubbard's horn there. Fox takes over on the guitar for the B section of the melody with a nice mix of melody and chords and cool hits on the harmonics as well. Ho finishes it out and works into a solo. After some cool high tone tension, he flows it down relaxedly into the middle, working slowly to build the tension with some rising phrases. I like Hart's change up of crispy hi-hat into ringing cymbals over the B section. Hull gets more go-arounds, bluesy but reserved, saving it up for some tension-building trills into a big finish of swooping chord lines. And Fox has a really tasty solo here, more muted low tones, fluid runs. I really like how she plays attention to dynamics in her playing and mixes in a lot of soft figures that you can you know, pick up that contrast from. She has a couple cool sections of working shorter repeated descending phrases. And when they take it out for another round of the tune... Ho starts it out over just the bass pedals, and that gives it a cool contrast from the beginning. And then Fox brings back in that guitar riff the next time around, and they have some fun with a double time feel for the B section this time, and some speedy guitar. was yeah, a very nice version of this famous tune. Track three, we go back to Fox's Originals Blues for Less. It's a loping tune with a lazy groove. Fox starts it out with a repeated low lick into chords for four measures into four more bars of chords where Hart starts a groove with a click on two and four. Fox plays the 16 bar bluesy melody line and Ho has a synced up harmony part. It has interesting chord changes and cool stop time in the ninth through 12th bars for some double time tumbling guitar lines. The Fox builds up a slow burn here, getting more animated with faster figures the second time around, and ending with extended descending figures. Ho's in a bluesy mood for this one, tying melodic phrases together, working up higher for some speedy lines, and then getting that kind of Leslie sound going for some big chord hits in a climax. They take it out with another lope through the melody, holding out a couple final chords for Fox to get some speedy final picking in. Track four is called Judy's Song. This is a slow ballad tune. Uh, Hart has the brushes making soft textures and Ho's bass pedals make a fat low end over which he has the sort of uh, bars set up to make a dark organ sound that swells under Fox's guitar. I think it's a 32-bar melody, but I was really too distracted to keep my place by all the cool Mm -hmm. things that Fox was doing here. She plays the melody line with tasty double stops, inventive fills, little harmonics for embellishment, and continues straight on for another round of soloing, always sounding fluid but with lots of variety of tone and attack on subtle lines. It's a very pretty and lush tune. Track five is Pack of Lies. This one starts out with an intro of some rhythmically unpredictable, syncopated unison guitar and organ lines, accented by heart, and finishing up on a drum roll and a hit. Then we're into an intense Latin minor groove. The melody is hypnotic, a line is played by Fox and Ho syncing up the bass pedals. It's an A-A-B-A form with a swinging B section to contrast with that Latin feel, and Fox doing some fun forceful chord work over the walking bass change-up. Hart's changing up the groove nicely and mixing in a lot of fills, and Fox is up first for a solo. They keep the rhythm feel change-ups going underneath. What I like about Fox's solo here is the extended lines she connects that seem to go over the phrases that you would naturally feel in the form. It just seems like ideas are overflowing into the next line. Uh, She finishes with some chord work, with some fun hesitation uh, in the rhythms there. Ho starts out with some rhythmically fun ideas. He gets bluesy, he works it into a chordy climax, and then Fox has some fun trading eights, and then fours with heart. It's really playful stuff, and they take it out with another run through the melody. Track six is called Blues For Us, and Hose starts this one out with a low and slow bass line for four bars, setting up another minor blues groove. And then we get something unique here, it's a 10 bar blues, not, not a 12 bar blues, but only mm. 10. It sounds it gets in C minor, but instead of going to a, a four chord, like a regular blues, you're going to get like this modal shift in the fifth bar. And then the last two bars have this neat descending guitar chord figures over stop time. Uh, Pretty neat. Fox has a really settled, relaxed feel, starting her solo with double-stop ideas. Bluesy licks, a nice line of descending figures that get moved higher each time. There's a great high point of rhythmic one, two, even rhythm exchanges between guitar and organ and drum hits. Really nice interplay. Ho starts his solo out very chilled here. Then he really works up the tension with some scurrying lines and high register riffs around an A note up there some cool trills. Fox comes back with muted melody riffs uh, to start a final run through. That's a different and really tasty blues tune. Track seven for Django, Avec Amour. Django Mm. Reinhardt, the famous guitarist, of course. We switch here to acoustic for the rest of the recording and I'm not sure the form here really. There's a 16 bar intro section. Uh, then a 32-bar melody which Fox plays with a clear high register tone. There are tasty little side movements, uh, double stops, and rhythmic filling figures. Hart has a soft kind of bossa brush beat going on, and Ho has real subtle backing, little descending fills, and soft rhythmic chord hits. Uh, Fox continues right on soloing. I really like the rhythmic snap in her phrases on acoustic guitar. Ho has a clean, soft, and warm sound here with a subtle but rhythmic solo then, getting that kind of uh, spinning tone at the end for Fox to return with the melody. Uh, they take a pause, and Fox continues on uh, solo and rubato to a final series of chords that Ho and Hart join in on to a soft ending. Then we're going to end up with a combination solo acoustic piece, uh, In My Life and Old Friends, so Lennon McCartney. Paul Simon. This is one of my favorite Beatles songs, and she's made a new intro to it. Uh, The first part is rhythmic and ringing, and then it moves into some repeated melodic lines that end with a sliding figures into a pause, and then the familiar intro to the tune and melody. It's a nice arrangement. She pays attention carefully to playing the melody uh, rather straight, while surrounding it with rich chords, little filling rhythmic answer phrases, harmonics, and some nice leading bass figures. She plays the outro and transitions into old friends with ringing chords, high note figures. It's delicate and unhurried. There are pretty arpeggio figures and melodic lines, creative accompaniment of chord ideas and bass lines, all with sensitivity to touch and tone. And the mic is really up close. You can hear everything, every (laughs) touch of her fingers on the strings. And that's the end of the program. So in a time when a lot of jazz guitarists sound so similar today a lot of them like obviously trying to sound like pat metheny or uh in the same vein of tone uh here's a guitarist with a unique approach and sound She doesn't need any effects on her tone because she has a really wide palette of sounds and tones and dynamics all in her hands. It's all about touch here. Fox's solos are really endlessly inventive and bursting with ideas. She uses the whole range of the guitar quite often, getting down low and then up high. The original compositions here are interesting, some unique structures and harmonic twists for your ear to follow. Brian has got inventive solos as well, and he does a great job accompanying. Uh, he creates a lush backing sometimes with that great uh, Hammond tone sound, but nice choices of you know which sort of tones to emphasize, and also his bass lines are really great and fun to follow as well. And Hart's drumming is tasty, fits right in, and adds a lot of great interplay to the trio. So if you haven't heard Mimi Fox's guitar playing, uh, she's got really good virtuosic ability, and uh, I enjoyed this a lot.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard uh, her playing actually until this album, now, and I'm pretty uh, turned on by it. Um, I think that the overall word I had for this was um, sensitive. I don't know. I thought I found hmm. her playing to be very sensitive. She's got this really gentle attack, which I found very appealing, and she shades her sound a lot too. So she's got all these little sort of micro yeah. of changes to exactly. her timbre, like when she plays, and I really liked that. Okay, a lot of nuance in her playing, and you. Sa- I said here that she's a different kind of guitarist than I often hear, which you actually said too. She's yeah. not imitating. Pat Metheny or anyone else. It sounds like. Okay. And the ensemble is good too. I actually pulled out Brian Ho as well as a sensitive soloist and I enjoyed the drumming as well. He'll step out aggressively at times, which is pretty, it's pretty Mm. interesting, but he generally stays really quiet as well. A lot of blues on this album It's comfortable and enjoyable. Very different than Wes Montgomery's approach and sound, but uh, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, uh, it's great to be inspired by someone but yeah, exactly. then to yeah. make your own thing from it and um
1: so yeah but uh, really fine recording yeah something unique i really hope that uh, the western press picks up on this as well you know the, I hope so and, yeah you
0: know as a guitarist myself and mainly an acoustic guitarist i don't really play a lot of electric guitar but i do have a guitar it's like a hybrid guitar and uh, it's got um just a humbucker pickup. Only only couple manufacturers make them, the go down that I have in Taylor. And so I've never really been into, you know, effects. I use them to match yeah. sounds depending on what kind of music I'm playing. Um, you know, but there are some players, you know, where last week or a couple of weeks ago, we heard, you know, Mike Stern, who has that kind of chorus that just, <laughs> it wraps you in a fog and you're sort of teleported to someplace. Uh, but I've always kind of, you know, been more of an acoustic player. So when I, hear a player on electric guitar but well obviously she's playing acoustic here too but she brings those sort of sensitivities from mm-hmm. acoustic with the touch to the electric instrument and all these nuanced tones I get pretty excited about it so that was good hmm. speaking of tone we're going to get hmm. something a little bit different and, and this next album is this is really great too I think you just heard this today because when I talked to you yesterday you hadn't heard it yet I, yeah I did hear this today yeah. was, and uh, okay. this one's going to put you uh Really in a good mood, too. This is a dangerous recording. I don't recommend listening to it in public because you're going to be tapping your foot and bouncing your head to it because <laughs> it's, it's uh, got that kind of groove to it. So uh, listen to this in privacy, uh, lest people wonder if you're you know in your right mind. We're what talking is talking about Yeah, what are we talking about? The new recording by Ed Cherry. Are yeah, we I there like yet? Are we there yet? On Cellar Live. We're always talking about Cellar Live... Uh, recordings are coming out with so much good stuff, Corey Weeds there. This one also came out January 20th, and we've got organ trio with a little bit of vibes mixed in with it, and that, that can't be a bad thing at all, <laughs> ever to have vibes on something.
1: It's, it's almost like it's Christmas again, yeah. I got vibes, I got organ, I got you know, guitar, yeah. everything's great. So if you don't know Ed Cherry, he's an American
0: guitarist and studio musician, known for a long association with Dizzy Gillespie who he performed with between 1978 and Gillespie's death in 1993. Since then, he's worked with other jazz greats, Paquito de Rivera, John Faddis, John Patton, and Henry Threadgill, Paula West. He's got uh, a number of recordings as a leader on his own. We last heard him on the podcast in episode 76, Essential Organs. We're always doing these rec- I keep taking of organ yeah. uh, trio recordings. But that was with uh, Brian Charette's Jackpot. Uh, also on Cellar Live, and Corey Weeds played on that recording. Anyway, here we've got a Cherry on guitar, Monty Croft on the vibraphone on a few tracks, the Hammond B3 organs handled by Kyle Kohler, and on drums we've got Byron Wookie Landham, a cool nickname. Wookie, <laughs> he doesn't look like uh, the Star Wars Wookie, so it must come from somewhere else. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, produced by executive producer Corey Weeds and Raymond Torchinski. Maybe he makes a maybe he makes a wookie sound. Could be, yeah. I don't know. Also hmm. produced by uh Jeremy Pelt as well. Okay. All right, we're gonna start out with uh, Ed Cherry Original Jean Pauline. This one gets going with an eight-bar intro with syncopated figures in the guitar and vibes pushing things ahead. The groove is even, latiny, and clicky. Next, there's a six-measure melody line in the guitar and vibes. Nice organ hits underneath it. The intro section returns then eight measures of solo vibes, then the intro figure again. It's an interesting arrangement. I uh, <laughs> didn't know what's coming up next. The vibes get to stretch out with longer solo again over great bass pulses in colors organs. On the way, they switch up the groove to swing. Croft has some speedy and exciting vibes going on here. They switch it back to the Latin groove, and Cherry gets some rhythmic chords into the short melody line we heard at the beginning, and then he's up for a solo. He starts with snappy rhythmic figures. What a great warm tone he uh, yeah, has on the guitar. It shifts into swing and he gets more bluesy. Works out tasty double time lines, shifting back into the Latin groove for a little melody line with vibes into an organ solo. Here Kohler's using a deep and dark tone that really draws you in. It's playful and rhythmic to start, getting more bluesy with a shift to swing. Choppy and then some cool trills. Back to Latin again with a change of tone and another run through the melody line and the intro section a couple times to finish it. Really nice grooves to get things going on this recording. Next, track two, Ding Dong, from organ great John Patton, and this was from his album Understanding in 1968. It's got the same syncopated 8-bar, happy-sounding intro as the original. The melody is a funky and fun 8-measure line worked by guitar and organ. And they go around it twice, and then Cherry launches into a solo. Oh, man, bluesy and funky (laughs) rhythmic fun here. After a pearly high taste, Cherry does some awesome chord strumming and diddling around here, fast-repeated notes and zippy figures. Gets back to the melody riff for a round and caller joins in before getting his own solo. He gets into some tension building, harmonic ideas, and flowing waves of sound before holding out a long chord and pushing bluesy licks to go around the melody a couple times and riff out on the intro figure for Landrum to get some speedy but soft drumming underneath to finish it up. Alright, another cover of a guitar great, Grant Green's Green Jeans. This one is made up of a syncopated chord figure that they start out with, cherry adding tasty solo ideas over it. Then the main melody is the chord figure and alternating call and response figures you hear every time you hear the chord figure itself. Organ and guitar sync and handle them together. It gets hypnotic in an AABA form. The B section is modulated, keeping the same patterns rhythmically. It's a great medium swing groove here. Cherry Solo's first keeps it cool with lots of space between phrases, some neat bendy note ideas. He uses repetition of riffs to build up tension, and then he gets into snappy chord ideas, Kohler has an edgier and more percussive tone on the Hammond here, and he uses some choppier articulation to go with it for a bluesy and super swinging solo. They vamp on the intro chord figure for Landon to start working up some drum soling, and then leave him alone for some sections. He's got really tight snare work at the center of everything he's doing. They take it around the melody sections again and continue on with a softer groove over a great organ pedal, rising bass line for some final guitar and organ exchanges and take it out with the intro chord riff.
1: Yeah, this was my favorite track on the album, by the way. It's a good one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, I really, really had, it had a Gangle good wrong. feel to it. Yeah.
0: Now, another keyboard great, but usually piano we hear, Cedar Walton, and this is his Holy Land. It's got a pulsing rubato but flowing organ intro with drum fills. Cherry picks it up into the minor 12-bar blues melody in tempo. The rubato organ section returns into another run around the melody. There's an 8-bar bridge section of excited bouncy figures handled tightly together by organ and guitar, and then Cherry breaks into a solo. It's fluid and rhythmic, Great organ chord hits, pushing him along. The solos stick to the 12-bar minor blues form. Color follows on organ. Here he plays on and on with new ideas of really well-connected lines. The end of the organ solo dissolves into the rubato organ section with nice drum work from Landum to help transition. They wrap it up with a final run around the melody and the bouncy bridge. Hmm, now track five. (laughs) Japanese folk song. As it says on the album credits, R. Taki. Well, since we're in Japan here, uh, I thought, okay, let's uh, dig a little deeper on this. If you start to play this in any Japanese R around, they'll just start singing along <laughs> or humming because everyone knows this melody. Uh, but the title doesn't give us enough information. It sounds, if you think folk song, you might think it's a, a traditional melody, but it's actually not. This is a song that actually comes from the modern Japanese era, 1901. The artaki is Rentaro Taki, and it's based on a poem by poet Bansui Doi, and the actual title of the piece is uh, Kojo no Tsuki, which roughly means moon over castle ruins. So this song was composed in Japan and has kind of a historical importance as being a, a song written to introduce European music to Japanese and it was designed to be, or written to be, sung by Japanese school children. But it has an interesting history. There was an earlier version, and in the melody line, it had a sharp fourth raised using one of the Japanese modes in the melody. But that sound to Western ears uh, sounds like a gypsy scale, and we associate (laughs) it with Hungarian music. And so in a later version of the tune, uh, I looked up the history in Japanese and uh, then they took out that uh, sharp fourth. And uh, so we get the current version of it that you can still hear uh, in Japan and most Japanese know. Anyway, uh, kind of an interesting history. The song is uh, Kojo no Tsuki. And I thought that was interesting, Watsuki being moon. There's that other song that uh we often hear by uh well, it was originally credited to Lee Morgan uh Desert Moonlight uh hmm. Tsukino Sabaku but it it's actually not not his composition i think maybe they just didn't know who wrote it when it was originally recorded and sometimes you hear people cover that uh but we've gone over that in a previous episode anyway when a little japanese piece of trivia shows up on a recording i usually try to uh, investigate it and see where yeah, it good came idea. from yeah mm-hmm. anyway this one starts out with the kind of bendy and oriental sounding modal lines on Cherry's guitar uh, into the melody line in a slow rubato with big organ swells on chords. And Cherry works out of that with a kind of dirty rhythmic riff and some trills as the organ takes over the rhythmic chords. And they get into a swinging groove with Cherry picking out the melody uh, with lots of space between the notes and some cool vibrato here. It's an interesting contrast over the low walking organ bass lines. Collars up for an organ solo next. He makes it bluesy and longing. Again, really connecting lines well. Gets a big change of tone with a huge shimmer to end it up. Cherry returns, and the plucky thinner tone he uses here in the upper register contrasts with his usual warm sound. Very clean attack on nice minor melodic ideas, and then trills, and some low note playful fun bluesy lines too. Comes to a hold with Cherry picking out some more fun kind of, uh, oriental sound ideas into another slow rubato round of the melody, great swelling organ and drums, and final ideas from Cherry to a big final chord hit. It's a really cool arrangement and creates a unique atmosphere uh, around this tune. Track six, the title cut, are we there yet, a Cherry original? The vibes are back here, organ and guitar chord figures, followed by a guitar and vibe lick for 16 bars. The second half modulates for four measures and then returns. Then there's four bars of a descending vibes line and four more riff measures. It's a 24 bar form overall, it seems. Uh, We hear it again, but this time... The line after the chords is with organ instead of guitar. After the descending vibe section that also shifts out of minor, we're into a guitar solo. It's a minor and bluesy, but has a nice major twist following the chord changes uh, from under that vibe melody we just heard. Really tasty stuff from Cherry here, moving a cool rhythmic riff around different registers. He builds up bluesy pressure, and releases it over the change of chords, finishing up with some double stop lines. Vibe Solo next. Flowing lines always sound relaxed, even when they're quite speedy. And Kohler primes up the organ with some rhythmic figures and an ominous tone, but he gets mellow spots between bluesier ideas and a big shimmering sound to end up. We finish it all up with the opening section and just the four bars of the Vibe descending line to a sudden ending. We're going to get a standard, Richard Rodgers' Spring is here for track 7. That's a pretty and short straight run through at just 3 minutes and 24 seconds. Uh, There's a 4 bar intro of organ chords, little ringing guitar notes. Color adds a surprising little hit of joy there. Uh, It's like Spring is bursting out. Cherry plays the melody straight and sustained. The rising lines in the B section with notes on the beat are pretty in the plainness of execution culler makes a bed of lush organ notes and landon plays almost imperceptibly faint brushes and soft tones at the end under cherry's final notes then more west montgomery mr walker for track eight and montgomery's trademark double stops and stop time make this one just irresistible. It's an A-A-B-A form with great stop time on the B section. The original has Tommy Flanagan on piano, but the organ hits here uh, really make a good mood. Um, when the groove gets going, it's a Sergio Mendez Brazil 66 Masque nada kind of vibe that it brought to me. Cherry solo here has great syncopated feel, but flows through connected ideas with great double-stopped and chord ideas. Kohler solo has a real 60s feeling going, lots of rhythmic phrases and a big bluesy finish, and they go through the melody once again, and then vamp out, giving Cherry some more time to have a little fun before ending it with the opening riff. Track 9, uh, Lawns, a Carla Blay tune. Cruft is back on the vibraphone for this breezy bossa tune. There's an eight-measure intro with some happy guitar figures. Cherry takes the light and carefree melody once himself, then Croft joins in for another round. Then Cherry is up for a solo, smooth, relaxed, and flowing. Landham has great, light bossa beat with clicks going on there. The combination of organ and sustained vibe chords is really sunny in feeling. Croft is next. Nice phrasing, melodies, easy flowing rhythmic ideas. They go around two more runs of the melody, like before, guitar, and then guitar, and vibes, and then keep on vamping around for some floating lines from Cherry and Ringing Vibes. And we're going to end up track 10, Tres Palabras, from Cuban composer Osvaldo Fares. This was played by a lot of people, but probably most people came to hear it from Charlie Hayden's Grammy Award-winning Nocturne. I think it was 2001. Cherry gets the groove and atmosphere going with the infectious opening riff of two bass notes and chords for an 8-bar intro, then he takes the minor melody, a 16-bar form that goes around twice. Kohler has really nice soft rhythmic chords, getting a little bolero kind of feel going with his figures. Kohler solos first with a clear and percussive tone. This is a really well-constructed solo, lots of rhythmic play and some speedy lines working up to a big finish. Cherry's next, starting really mellow with short phrases of muted tones into bluesy double stops. He connects it back to another round of the melody and some final play over vamping with the opening riff pattern. Great subtle Latin groove all through by Landom and tasty fills. And that's it. It's a really great recording. Uh, Cherry is suave, great honey-toned guitar, always smooth phrases of flowing ideas. Kohler has inspired organ solos, a nice palette of tones uh, on the Hammond, and Landham really nice drum grooves. Uh, Croft's vibes add some extra tonal variety and excitement on a few tunes. And the tune selection is satisfying overall. It's a great program of like a minor blues buffet and some Latin side dishes. And uh, (laughs) I've got this CD on order. I can't wait for it to arrive.
1: All right. Yeah, this is a really well-recorded album, too. I thought everything just register so well, like, right up front. I especially was drawn to the organist Kyle Kohler's Kohler's sound on this album. His presence is noticed when he accompanies, but he's really not, you know, Mm. so far forward. And uh, the bass lines are clearly heard throughout. And uh, you were right to tell me to turn the uh, subwoofer on. I did. It sounded great. Yeah. Anyway, the recording captures his solo as well, and he's a bit quiet there in his approach. Uh, Cherry has a very bluesy approach. I've I've been listening to him for some time, actually. Um, I like his playing a lot. He always sounds good and hears no different. Articulates nicely, gets a lot of expression in his tone, and it really hits me in the right place. It it can mm. His playing can really lift you up. The vibraphonist Monty Croft is an excellent addition to this trio. He gets yeah. a, which, uh, you know, because he's not on every track, but he gets this really beautiful rounded tone. He's got a sort of gentle attack. And plays melodically a lot. This was really enjoyable. And uh, I'll have to put this one on order order myself. It sounds great. It's a great recording. But this one, that organ, really,
0: it gives you that bath of sound. And it's a warm bath, you know. Right. um, Yeah, he's very present. I liked that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, really good. So we're going to go from that kind of warm bath to something a bit edgier to to close out uh, yeah. the organ trio. Mm. Uh, like I said, we got a lot of variety in uh, this format. And we're going to go to Dave Stryker's new release, Prime. This is on his own label, Strike Zone Records. Now, this is out, today is February, what is today, 4th, 5th? Today is the 4th for us. 4th for us. And this is yeah. listed as out february 3rd and it is on amazon you can order the cd Uh, however on deezer and spotify they only have the title track still it is listed on apple music i don't have the paid apple music because we use deezer apple music has the tracks up i assume you can listen to them but it lists the date as february 10th so maybe the cd came out i i assume (laughs) you'll be able to hear it on spotify and uh deezer soon anyway thank you to jim Ego at jazz promo services because we've had this for a while an advanced copy and have been enjoying listening to it and we're going to talk about it tonight so mm. we last heard dave striker back in episode 46 fretboard free for all and that was uh, <laughs> his recording <laughs> as we are also on strikes on records that was an interesting recording because it had uh, strings on it as well as having, uh, let's see, John Patitucci on bass and, uh, Brian blade on drums. Julian shore was on piano there. And, uh, so here we're going to have a organ trio format, but we're going to hear two of the tunes we heard from that previous recording, although in very different presentations. And so striker originally from Nebraska, but he came to New York in 1980. He's got more than 30 albums, uh, under his own name, as well as, uh, Long associations playing with Stanley Turrentine, Jack McDuff, uh, Steve Slagle. And on this recording, we've got Jared Gold on organ, and we've got McClenty Hunter on drums to round out the trio. And we'll get started with the title track, Prime. A drum roll begins and brings it into an eight bar intro of some very tense organ and guitar chords. It's got a fast tempo and an edgy mood. Gold keeps the chord figure going for the melody section and Stryker takes the melody line of short fluid figures. It seems to be a 24 bar length uh, with an AAB structure. On the B section, the guitar and organ lock in together on some fast syncopated pairs of notes. They go around it twice and Stryker is off into a solo with a crackling lead in over the break. Gold really has the bass pumping and the edge of the notes sounds really clear in the recording on the bass pedal. Sometimes organ can sound like muddy down there, not here. Anyway, this guitar solo is blazing. Stryker really mixes up the rhythmic flow and figures in his lines over the driving tempo. Hunter's fast to highlight rhythmic solo figures with hits and cymbals, and Gold plays really punchy backing chords. Stryker gets a really cool, fast, repeated note and interval idea. (laughs) That's going to come up again in his solos. It's it's kind of a trademark for him uh, for a climax, and he finishes it up. With the b section and that syncopated figure of three pairs of notes gold keeps up the speed and intensity in his solo he's not afraid to use dissonance at all and mm. i like the way he builds lines uh, on each other sometimes seeming to pose questions to himself and then answering them they go around outlining the chords with hits for hunter to get some drum soloing uh, he keeps the snare rolling with alternating toms into a big finish with a hit and a pause into a final run through the melody to finish it off. Hot stuff here to get things going. Track two, Lockdown. And toms roll into a four-bar intro. That's four bars of seven-four guitar and organs with a kind of shuffle feel. If you can imagine a shuffle in 7-4, you got to listen to it. The melody has a loping guitar line over the odd meter for an 8 bar section of phrases. Then it seems to change to 6-4 for two bars before it goes back to 7. Now this is very interesting because they go around the structure twice. Stryker comes out of that with some solo lines uh, and then he hands it over to Gold. He really stacks up some notes into tension building chords, skittering lines. They seem to extend that six four part to four measures in the solos. I don't know, maybe I'm not good at counting, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but it's you hard. figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Comes down soft for striker solo. He builds up from short phrases, it gets bluesy, more edgy, with hard attacks coming into some neat double stops and rising lines to finish it up into a final run through the first melody section track three is called Captain Jack. It's a bluesy swinging tune. It's a 24 measure melody section that starts with a really tricky and fast guitar lick of descending interval figures. Sometimes Gold works them together with the guitar. Hunter keeps it swinging with cymbal work as Stryker launches into a solo with speedy lines and inventive rhythmic lick ideas. Again, really nice bass pumping and some shocking chord hits sometimes here. Stryker plays on and on, getting bluesier, then more harmonically adventurous, and then back to bluesy, with more of that repeated note in interval lick idea we heard from before. And what I mean is this... Mm -hmm. ...that kind of uh, like lick. It really builds up the tension. Gold starts out bluesy with some dissonance. He swings hard and works up to a high-held chord over figures and then some crazy rising lines. They trade off some fours with Hunter going around for some drum action and take it through the tricky uh, lick melody once more. And check out Stryker's final speedy lines at the end of the tune. Little contrast. Now track four... Hope. I should mention, I, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning, these are all Striker's original compositions. Mm-hmm. This one has a unique kind of even beat and long intro of soft rising organ chords and light guitar. It gives it a very uplifting, hopeful mood. It matches the title. The 16-bar melody has matching, uplifting phrases in the guitar that seem to pick up and then set something down, like step by step. It's almost like I feel like your mood is being carried up you know, the stairs by the shape of the melody. Uh, Stryker goes around twice and Gold once and then once more for Stryker. And Gold gets a solo. He has some interesting rhythmic play, really snappy at first and then some more syncopated and darting phrases before a soft ending. Stryker's a really mellow tone on this one, fluid flow uh, right through, getting more syncopated bounce with repeated note and figure ideas towards the end. And he continues on through two more melody runs, and Gold has another run, and a striker, a final goal. But it's a really uplifting kind of uh, shape to the phrases in this tune. Track 5, As We Were, and this one had a string arrangement for the opening on his previous release. It was on that album too, Uh, so we heard this before. Very different here, Gold starting it out with some solo rubato organ, over deep bass pedals, first clean-toned and then adding in some whirr onto the sound. Stryker enters with the melody in tempo after about a minute. It's a gentle, slow, and contemplative 16-bar theme. The repeated phrase in bars 9 and 10 and then 11 and 12 gives like the impression of pondering a question about something. Nice light brushwork from Hunter underneath. Stryker continues on improvising with gentle, fluid lines. Gold gets a go around with more animated and intense and mood kind of ideas and then some speedier figures, but he brings it down soft with a, some final fading chords for Stryker to do some more melody work, adding in double stops a bit this time and some final harmonics to dreamy and pretty tune. Track six is Mac, and I guess this one is for McClinty Hunter, the drummer, and it has a cool subdivided rocky beat to it. The A section of the melody is syncopated chords that give it a feel of pushing ahead. They go around that twice and the B section has a lot of stop time for the drums by Hunter to uh, get in some fills there. Then there's another section with solo guitar lines and some syncopated figures into a final guitar notes and a cool organ bass riff. Gold's up first for a solo and he works In the syncopated figures from the melody on his way through his solo. Stryker has some nice choppy rhythm guitar going on underneath there, and there's this huge big beat by uh, Hunter on the drums. The final B section gets some fun funky action into Stryker's solo. Great rhythmic ideas as well as skillful navigating through the chords by Stryker here, and some more of that repeated note Uh, an interval lick that he played before. Uh, They take it through the melody again and give Hunter some more drum fun at the end, jamming out over the first melody figures to a couple big hits to finish it up. We're gonna get our only standard on here, I Should Care, Axel Stortle, Paul Weston, with lyrics by the great Sammy Kahn, published in 1944. They give it an 8-bar intro, the kind of pedal tone idea uh, in the guitar. Now normally we hear this tune as a 4-4 ballad, but here we've got a 6-8 feel going that kind of makes it bounce along nicely. Very soft brushwork, sketching it out from Hunter, and Stryker has a nice slidey, kind of double-stop idea going on the melody. Uh, Gold takes a strain of the melody too before Stryker finishes it up, but then passes it back to Gold for a solo. He playfully uses a lot of ideas from the melody, Uh, and he has a lot of harmonic and rhythmic fun on this one. Bringing it way down soft to transition to Stryker's solo, he works out of the lower register into rhythmic double-stop ideas back into the melody, and they jam out at the ending, building it up for some really cool double-stop fun, and then a soft ending. Track 8 is called Deep. The 8-bar organ chord intro over Hunter's clicky Latin groove set up a samba feel, The melody is a 16-bar section with nicely leading sets of repeating 1-bar guitar phrases and 2-bar answers. The last 4 bars go into some syncopated phrases where the steady samba beat breaks up. Things get flowing again. And Stryker gets going on a solo of lines that pulsate over the Latin groove in waves of double-time phrases. He really connects ideas up through this one, finishing up over the syncopated section. Gold is bouncy and upbeat phrases to get things going, some zippy lines, but overall very melodic, and ending up with a run of syncopated chords. They trade off with Hunters a bit before getting another run through the melody, and wait for the final organ swell with a huge Hmm. deep bass at the end of this tune. And we're going to end up track nine dude's lounge (laughs) uh, Stryker starts it out with some solo rubato guitar mixing bluesy leads and chords under phrases very tasty stuff and a final turnaround lick brings everyone in at about a minute and 40 seconds with Hunter beating in a shuffle groove the melody's 12 bar blues with some interesting chords and a unique final phrase Gold Solo's first bluesy but harmonically adventurous over Stryker's fat rhythm chords and a huge beat here by Hunter Uh, he really builds up the tension with some held out chords on the organ. Stryker solos next, a real burner of a solo, getting bluesy, rocky, but with some cool harmonic adventure and dazzling speedy lines. The final high chord solo section is really percussive and rocking, and Hunter gets some drum time, and he just keeps the groove going, mostly static at first, but after some organ hits, he starts mixing in some tom exchanges, leads it back into another round of the melody and a big finish a very cool high energy rocky blues to end things up and yeah so they have a, an album that starts really edgy and i think a lot of that is due to gold's kind of uh organ style now, i i made i made a comment about this yeah.
1: i'll tell you in a minute those yeah. really
0: kind of angsty chords and a lot of dissonance and oppressing rhythms uh there's just a lot of tension that needs to be resolved in strikers playing and uh, it always feels like the solos are really wound up and uh, gold's got that kind of uh, you know right backing to give that you know real push into things from the start of the album but we get you know a lot of different moods here too we get the pretty hope and uh, as we were to break things up, we get some Latin-y feels and uh, a little more rocky thing going on here, but great interplay. I think these guys have played together uh, on the road for like 12 years or so. And so you, you pick that up and high energy all the way through. And striker's just got really amazing guitar chops and so many ideas. And I, I like how he, you know, the way he phrases, he takes a lot of chances, but he's such a mature and musical player that he always he can get himself into a difficult spot and just find the right shortcut back in or a long way around and it always just sounds great so i always enjoy his playing eager to hear
1: new solos by him the organist by i mentioned what i said about him was uh, that he put in quite a few harsh chords like he was playing the score of a horror movie. And I yeah. said that they, they, <laughs> they hurt so good as the uh, John Mellencamp <laughs> yeah. song has it. Yeah. Yeah. Really energetic playing on this album. I liked that. I'd like to hear more of this, these kind of chords. Because, you know, classical music, you you have a lot of harsh chords that will kind of, right you know, sometimes they'll lead into another key area if it's functional harmony or otherwise, you know, just are there for effect i'd like to hear a lot more of that in jazz uh not driving the music but like for effect you know Mm. but you know in in standard jazz not like just in a vanguard recording it sounds good on the organ that uh yeah those types of chords those really harsh sounding chords the organist changes his approach in different tracks too like i really enjoyed that too he has a good ear and genuine Mm. inventiveness in approach on a macro level I was really Waiting to hear what he was gonna do on each track, and Stryker himself is—he's pretty melodic as a player and soloist. He leaves a lot of space for his lines to breathe, and he goes into some complex harmony too. I mean, I guess that would be expected with with yeah. the organs laid down, uh, bringing the key area into unexpected places. Like he's a classical composer, so I heard a lot of like just classical elements mm-hmm. in this. Um, album, as far as Harmony goes. Uh, Stryker has a good feel throughout, virtuosic at all times, soulful at others. He's a complete jazz guitarist and inventive with his material. And the compositions, too, I thought were all interesting, with lots of interesting ideas um, provided by both the compositions and the soloist stretching of the ideas through their solos. It's a captivating album, complex at times, never unappealing. I liked it a lot.
0: Yeah, real exciting. Mm. I hope you can hear it. Exciting by... is a good word, too, yeah.
1: Yeah, let's see. Today is, uh, we're recording a day early
0: uh, this week on Saturday. Uh, so this will go up on the 6th. Hey, you may have to wait till the 10th to catch this on streaming, but you can order the CD. This is one you're going to want for your collection. Actually, get all three of these. You can't go wrong uh, with any of yeah, these uh, recordings.
1: Because we just love the organ so much, right? Yeah.
0: Guitar <laughs> organ trio. Guitar organ
1: trios are great. Yeah. Got some
0: vibes in there as well yeah you're gonna hear more of them because I can't stay away from these probably yeah. gonna work that one with the big bass fluting on it too uh, I like them too point, and yeah, I so. actually
1: collect CDs now I have so many of these <laughs> I don't know which one to listen to yeah you can never right. have too much uh I guess trio not. yeah indeed next
0: week uh, I've got uh jazz piano coming up we've got the new Mike Ladon and uh, a couple other ones as well Uh, a younger pianist that I'm really excited about and I know you're going to like that too Mike I think all the listeners if they don't know who he is are going to like him but uh, we get that out in the following week if you want the playlist for next week's recording soon after this episode gets published that's going to go up on Deezer and there'll also be a link to it on Facebook too so you can come over to facebook and find that out if you want to get listening to the recordings ahead of I've time before the episode comes out what do you got yeah, going next, week, next I'm week i'm gonna piano, go for right? that
1: piano yeah, I'm gonna go for that piano i'm really going for like old school piano like mm. when i was younger like who the big names were first we have uh a new recording by Maurizio pollini who just um oh. celebrated his 80th birthday wow. and uh, decided to record the hammer clavier sonata by beethoven and there's a lot to say about that because um he released a very famous recording of the last five Beethoven piano sonatas in this 1977, so I'm going to have to say something about that. It, this, right. this this will inevitably reflect on that. And also Martha Argerich, uh, huh. one of the great pianists of the 20th century and now the 21st century, but she's right. also getting up there too. She's with the Renault Capuson and some violin sonatas. Hmm. And then I go to a, a young pianist that I like a lot now, uh, Beatrice Rana, another Italian, so we have two Italian pianists. I think I remember now. her, yeah. Yeah, and uh, she's playing... Uh, Schumann piano concertos, both Robert and Clara. Oh. They both have a uh, piano concertos. And I've never right. heard the Clara Schumann piano concerto. So I'm looking forward to that. And the Robert Schumann piano concerto is really one of my favorite works of all time. So, all
0: right. It's going to be a good week of piano music.
1: It'll be good. Yeah. Looking forward to it.
0: Excellent. So that's all coming up for episode 102. That's going to be in celebration of our two year anniversary. So we'll be doing a face-to-face yeah, Life we very well layer. might
1: actually be doing this on the actual two year anniversary yeah. of our first recording session, which is February eleventh in yeah. uh twenty twenty one. So the actual day. So that would be a Saturday, so we have to get together on Saturday for that one. Yeah. We'll see.
0: That'd be exciting. Mm. Do up some barbecue and uh Oh yeah. I've got a really excellent primativa and we've got the port wine left over from the end uh, of the, the year from celebration. the Christmas uh yeah.
1: party, yeah. So yeah,
0: that's going to be great.
1: I'm running out of port wine. You see the uh, the store near me, it seems like they have it for the holidays. They get all these special liquors right. in. And then, like, once January comes, it's just what they normally have. So I think I, uh, I'm going to have to enjoy this port wine a little extra. Yeah, let's enjoy know, it more than usual. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sounds good. Anyway, a good week of piano music listening coming up. And uh, actually, check out everything this week, especially I like that uh, Baroque uh, one. Put that on the in the morning. Tum-a, the Tuma one. Tum-a, yeah, yeah. Listen yeah, to put that, that in, in the really, morning something new get your spirits and blood pumping to Mm. get started yeah so all right thanks to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo remember after we sign off here you'll get those uh, promos for the other music podcast take a listen to them and you'll find links to them at the end of the description anything else before we sign off there mike
1: I have nothing. I'm already just going to run into the other room and start listening to all that piano music for next week, right now.
0: From organ to piano, and we'll be back again for our second anniversary episode. Until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Booth Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow, Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz blues and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part
1: of that Be More music scene. Joe
0: Lovano, Jeff Kaufman, Paula Cole, Danuso, Makatani, and Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscroll,
1: mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe D'Amino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards,